That to-do list you have needs one more thing. Chill. It's an easy thing to do. Just crack open an ice-cold Coors Light and chill. Take the afternoon off and binge watch anything. Go to happy hour and stay for a couple hours. Who's counting anyways? Or hang out with just your dog because you've had enough human interaction this week. Whatever you do, do it with a Coors Light. Mountain cold refreshment made to chill. 2020 Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. Pac-12 Conference has been on and off talking about their media rights deal. Two more weeks, two more weeks. It kind of felt like for a while there that it was like the pandemic. Like we all thought it was going to be over and then two more weeks, two more weeks. Kirk Schultz, the president of Washington State, essentially came out today and, and made some waves on that front. Comments that he made. Now, keep in mind, Washington State is bound by law in the state of Washington. They have to present gents and their legislature with a budget every year. And so buried in that budget are some interesting uh, pieces of the media rights deal that's coming down the pipeline, and it's got people buzzing today as Kirk Schultz, the president at Washington State, is uh, on record and uh, and uh, essentially signaling what he says is a two-week time window for this deal maybe potentially to get done. Now, I'm not going to hold the Pac-12 conference to the two-week window. I'm going to tell you what I've learned. Uh, I wrote about it at johnconzano.com. If you subscribe, you got it in real time, and you can pour over it. But uh, the Pac-12 conference moving towards a deal, and i got to wonder, buried in this deal, if part of their strategy in waiting and waiting and waiting has been to squeeze San Diego State, a potential expansion candidate, into taking a lesser distribution in the early years of the deal. Keep an eye on that. But uh, the news today that uh, uh, everyone's talking about is uh, Schultz saying that essentially he believes that the media rights revenue in the fiscal year 2024, again, he's bound by law, to uh, come forth and talk about his finances publicly. Some of the schools are not in their respective states. And Schultz is saying that he he expects it to be essentially flat when it comes to media rights money, essentially flat. Now, the Pac-12 schools with UCLA and USC in the fold generated $381 million from their television contract that included ESPN, the Pac-12 Networks, and Fox. $385 $385 million. You split that 12 ways, it comes out to $32.1 million per school in distributions. And so Schultz is essentially saying, hey, it's going to be flat. Uh, I have another source in the Pac-12 conference who is telling me that they are confident they're going to beat the Big 12's number of $31.6 million. But I've wondered for a while why we got this delay, why everybody's making us wait. We're all sick and tired of it. San Diego State's tired of waiting. Fans are tired of waiting. But the Pac-12 presidents and chancellors have been uh, oddly patient in recent weeks. And I'm just kind of wondering if they've cut a deal with San Diego State to bring San Diego State into the fold 
in exchange for announcing their deal uh, you know, prior to June 30th. For people who don't know, San Diego State would very much love to be in the Pac-12 conference um, and uh, very much love to be part of it. But I'm kind of wondering, Stephen, if we're playing a game of poker here, we're negotiating. San Diego State knows that if they inform the Mountain West Conference prior to July 1 that they are leaving for the Pac-12 in time for the 2024 season, it costs them $17 million to exit the conference. If they wait until July 1, it costs them $34 million. If Do you think that that helps explain that why the Pac-12 Conference would act so patient in March and go, yeah, we've got time. We're reframing this to late spring, early summer. And I continue to be told late spring, early summer. Yeah, I think that plays a lot into it because they know, you know, the fact that they've kind of been slow playing it the whole time, right? Like what what would be the there'd be no benefit to start speeding up at this point. So I think hopefully, you know, if you're a Pac-12 fan, you have to hope that they've been thinking about this the whole time. They're going to have a good rollout when they do roll out all this information. So yeah, I think back in March when everyone wants answers, they're thinking, no, you know, we're going to make sure we have all our uh, I's dotted, T's crossed, all that kind of stuff. We're going to be ready to roll this out. And when it's if it's San Diego State, we get them. You know, we'll be ready to announce it at that moment. I, I think that they're, they've been slow playing it the whole time. I don't see why they would ever speed it up at this point now. Yeah, and I think if you are uh, a Pac-12 fan, you really just want to get back to talking about the football. Like, I almost feel like, Stephen, as we have the media rights discussion, we should also just kind of pepper each other like, hey, hey, Stephen, who – Who's your top three QBs in the Pac-12? Like you know, and then and then in the next breath we could talk about does San Diego State belong in the expansion discussion? But uh, on that note, all right, let me just say you can't have Caleb Williams. You get you get to take one other quarterback. Who do you take? I'm taking Michael Penix Jr. I, I think he's really good as long as he's healthy, and and that's the thing. He's he he got hurt in Indiana, but last season they kept him upright at Washington. I think they can do that again. I'd take Michael Penix Jr. Um, I'll ask you a question then, John. If uh, take USC out of it because they're the okay. favorites right now, what Pac-12 team is going to go to the Pac-12 title game? Uh, I'm going to say Oregon. I think I think Oregon is well positioned. I like their schedule. I like Bo Nix. Uh, I'm not worried about Will Stein as the offensive coordinator, and I think they can do they can they can do nothing but get better on the defensive side of the ball. Right? They were disappointing, I think, on the defensive side of the ball. So I'll take Oregon. Like as much as I'd love to see Oregon and Oregon State in that. In that, uh, you know, in that equation, in that, you know, civil war for all the marbles, so to speak, the questions I have for Oregon State are, are, are at key positions. Like, they've lost so much defensive experience and team captains on the defensive side of the ball. Jaden Grant gone. Jack Coletto gone. I, you know, I need to see that they can replace that leadership because that leadership was such an important part of them getting to 10 wins. Secondarily, you know, we know it's a quarterback-centric game. Oregon's got the better quarterback, at least the more proven quarterback right now. Bo Nix clearly, I think, is more proven. He's a, he's a known commodity. I think DJ Uyunglele, I'm excited to see him play. I think he's going to be good, and I think the future at Oregon State's really bright with Aiden Childs, and Ben Gulbranson, if he is the backup, is going to be the most experienced, best backup in the conference. I still think that there's a bigger question at quarterback for Oregon State than there is for Oregon as long as Bo Nix stays healthy. Uh, on the media rights front, is it poor form by the Pac-12 if they have pushed and punted and delayed and dragged us all to June 30th to negotiate a better deal with San Diego State, meaning that San Diego State doesn't get a full share their first year in the conference, but in exchange, the Pac-12 says, uh, we'll announce before July 1 so you don't have to pay 34 mil. 
I think it, I'm going to go like this, John. I think it's a bad look for the Pac-12 if San Diego State's not coming to the Pac-12. And yeah. I don't know what's going to happen, but I think with all this realignment stuff, with all the things that have been said about the Big 12, how they're going out and getting teams, I think if the Pac-12 stays at 10, I think that's a bad look. Uh, and maybe that's just you know me wanting them to be the Pac-12 again. But I do think if San Diego State just doesn't even come, I think that, that that's an L on on the Pac-12's part. And so I think I think that's why they're kind of slow playing this whole thing. And you know I think San Diego State when they come in, they may not get a whole share, um, just based off you know what you know trying to basically you know earn your way I guess into the Pac-12 for lack of a better term there. But yeah, I think I you know I really think that they got to get in there. Yeah, and I think I I because I'm wrestling with this. Like Kirk Schultz is the president of Washington State. He's been more, one of the more outspoken presidents. We've had him on this show. Um, you know, I think he's one. He's a very sports knowledgeable president in the conference. He knows what he's talking about. In fact, we had we had Schultz and Anna Marie Casse on the show together after uh, George Klyovkov was uh, was hired as com- commissioner of the conference. I thought it was a really good conversation with two presidents in the Pacific Northwest, along with Michael Schill, who was then at Oregon. We had all three of them on that day. But Schultz is essentially signaling that, hey, our media rights revenue in 2024, he told his regents this today, it's going to be flat. Now, people are going, oh, flat means a step backwards because, you know, you're losing USC and UCLA. No, he's saying that they're again going to be around 32. They had 32 million in the fiscal year uh, 2022. If they are flat without UCLA and USC, it tells me that, you know, you're only dividing the pie 10 ways or you're adding San Diego State. And I fail to see how you get flat in year one of that deal without adding San Diego State. It just seems to me that the number's going to be higher. And, in fact, I have a Pac-12 source saying, quote, we will beat the Big 12's number. So, uh, you know, the new expectations are set, but they will beat the new number. Does San Diego State move the needle? Like, from a basketball standpoint, we just see it. We saw them get to the national title game. What else do they add in your mind, Stephen? You know, you talk about the market size just being down in L.A. or, you know, not in L.A., but in California, you know, Southern California, I think that is big. And, you know, losing USC, UCLA, you got to have that representation. And I think San Diego State, you know, you've seen the success of Utah in the conference and they elevated themselves. It took them a little bit, but they gradually grew over year after year. And I think San Diego State's the same type of thing, right? You look at, you know, how they go about their business when it comes to sports, not just in basketball, but in football. They've had some really good football seasons as well. Um, I, I think once they get to the Pac-12, that's going to be even a better, you know, recruiting pitch that those coaches can put to them. Saying, you know what, now we're in the Pac-12. Uh, you know, want to come play in San Diego? Who doesn't want to go live in San Diego all the time and then play football there? I, I think that they are, you know, the the sleeping giant thing is kind of, uh, you know, it's kind of a you know overused term, but I almost think San Diego State is one of those teams that could be a sleeping giant when it comes to sports because. They're just missing playing in the Pac-12. They play in the Mountain West. Nobody wants to play against you know, Fresno State, Boise State every week after week. Now you're on the big-time stage in the Pac-12. I think uh, San Diego State could do a lot good there. Yeah, we're going to talk about a lot of things on today's show. Uh, we'll get a visit from Pat Kilkenny, the former Oregon AD, who is uh, you know the guy who resurrected baseball at Oregon. He's going to be joining us uh, in Hour 2, 4 o'clock, coming up to talk about you know what it's like for him to kind of see his baby the baseball program elevated into a super regional that will be played today. Game one of the three-game series, best of three series, taking place at PK Park, Pat Kilkenny Park, uh, later today. So uh, Pat Kilkenny will be joining us at 4 o'clock on the show. We'll play Punch It Audio coming up. Um, 
I also uh, just I want a lot of phone calls on today's show, and I want to hear from you because Stephen and I are talking a little bit about the Pac-12 conference when it, it pertains to sports, and we're mixing it up with media rights. And I try to do that because, frankly, the media rights stuff is tired. It's boring. It you know it doesn't move the needle. It's not why you're coming to this show to hear like you know it's too much like real life. This whole expansion thing, and frankly, I I feel I feel like some of um, some of what we've seen in sports just in the last year or so has been really more like real life and regular life than than sports is supposed to be. Even the transfer portal and and name image likeness. I had somebody today. Yeah, I was I was doing a, an appearance on a Colorado uh, podcast or radio show and. And they were asking me about, like, hey, is what Coach Prime is doing in college football, you know, he, he has a, uh, a defensive back that he obviously, a highly recruited defensive back, was the number one defensive back in the country who chose Jackson State, who has since transferred to Colorado. But before he got in the transfer portal, he announced that, you know, he, he was waiting to see if he could get to 1,000 followers on his YouTube channel. And he was basically kind of leveraging the different fan bases, putting their logos out there on social media, saying, I don't know, I might be going here, I might be going. Everybody knew he was going to Colorado. And, you know, I don't blame a kid like that, but I was asked, is that poor form? And I said, you know, the problem is all of it, you know, you can do two different things in college football. You can sell proof of performance. And I think Kyle Whittingham at Utah is a great example of that. Hey, back-to-back conference championships, great culture, proof of performance. Or you can sell your NIL collective uh, along with a little bit of hope and a little bit of promise. And that's what Colorado is doing. And, you know, Coach Prime has uniquely positioned his players to sort of exploit the system that's in front of him. And I don't begrudge that. But simultaneously, I think the antidote to that is the culture I just mentioned. Utah only lost eight players in the transfer portal to other schools. Oregon State only lost six. Those are the two best programs in the conference when it comes to retaining their own talent. And I kind of wonder if the blend that you really strive for in college athletics, again, back to the real world stuff, the blend is you want to have great culture, of course, and then you want to have a pretty good collective. You don't need to have the best collective if you've got great culture because you'll retain your talent. But you're going to need some kind of collective. And, Stephen, we have watched this in – the last kind of, you know, what is it, uh, six, eight, 12 months, it just feels a little bit too much like real life and not enough about, like, the stuff we were talking about, Michael Penix Jr., Bo Nix, Oregon's defense. Yeah, and the stuff on the field, especially in the Pac-12 this season, John, is going to be so awesome. Like, that, you know, there's been down seasons for the Pac-12. That's not what it's going to be this season. There's, a, there's you know, five legitimate teams who I think you could argue have a shot to think you can go to Vegas from day one and then just not even t- you know taking into account some teams that could be sleeper teams. You know, we talk about Arizona being one of those teams uh, that could maybe sneak up on some people if Delora is right and eligible, depending on what happens in his situation. So I mean, it's tough that this this whole media rights deal is going down this off season because this off season was the time to hype up the conference because there's so many good quarterbacks that are going to be playing next season. So I you know I can't wait till stuff is on the field. And that's what we're really focused on for the season. Um, speaking of that, John, I do have another question for you, Pac-12 style. Yeah. Uh, out of the new coaches, Coach Prime, Kenny Dillingham, Troy Taylor, yeah. Stanford, which one's going to be the most successful in this upcoming season? Uh, I, I think Coach Prime's going to have trouble in the win-loss column. He, But can you argue with the fact that they've sold out their season tickets, their merchandise is selling through the roof, Colorado's become cool again. It was not cool for like a decade. 
you know, th- I think Colorado fans can hold that up as a win. But I simultaneously am going, hey, that's not going to really translate in the win-loss column. I think you're going to have Kenny Dillingham at Arizona State. I'm going to put him at, like, four. I'm going to put Coach Prime at three or four. I'm gonna put Taylor at two. I mean, Coach Prime might get it. He so, might, you know. So, so not success. Not not a lot of high wins out of these new coaches, no, huh? No, I think it's too hard. I think, and here's the thing: like, I talked to a couple of Pac-12 coaches, and I really tried to sell the idea: is Coach Prime gonna be capable of competing in year one? And there's some snickering going on, and they're going, he's got some skill position guys that are no doubt promising, but. Unproven quarterback, uh, no depth on the offensive or defensive line, and you know we'll find out over time that you need some depth on the offensive and defensive line to compete. And and here's the other thing: like I don't I don't hold that up as a failure. Like there's part of me that wants to see Coach Prime succeed because Colorado's investing in football, and you should be investing in football. That's that's the name of the game. Like Colorado is pouring money into football and reaping a benefit from it immediately, and that is the American way. This is, you know, this is capitalism. This is this is very fair. Pour into it, get it back. Like season tickets, all the enthusiasm. But I'm not quite with the people out there that are going, he's going to compete for a conference championship because I, I just don't see the offensive and defensive linemen. 503-417-7575 is the number. Let's go to the phone lines. Mike's in Portland. Mike, what do you got, man? First of all, man, you talk about Bo Nix. You know, you have to look at the at the fact that he wasn't successful in the SEC. That's why he came to the Pac-12. Well, if you look at Colorado's team right now, that's an SEC team because most of the players on Colorado has came from the SEC and the ACC. So what um, Coach Prime has done is he's snuck an SEC team in the Pac-12. Bo Nix, we already know he can't hang in the SEC. That's why he up here. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. You think he, you give? Do you give Bo Nix the benefit of the doubt? Do you think that he had some growth? Well, I'm just telling you, Bo Nix. First of all, it, he he's looking at the NIL. He ain't looking at the NFL. Coach yeah. Prime said he want guys on his team that is not looking at the NIL but looking at the NFL. He yeah. wants dogs. That's what yeah, he has. But I think, I, Mike, I think, I think he's got he's got receivers, he's got running backs, he's got defensive backs. Obviously, I wonder though. I look at his offensive lineman. Okay, he's got he's got three returning starters that played on a bad team. But let's give him benefit of doubt. Three returning starters is not bad. They added uh, Tyler Brown from Jackson State, Isaiah Jada from Snow College, Savion Washington from Kent State, Jack Wilty from Iowa Community College. And they got another kid from Kent State, another kid from Missouri State. Those aren't SEC kids. John, he he got about 18 or 19 uh, people on his team that comes from either the SEC or the ACC. He got a lot of those those, uh, players on his team. I agree that he's got skill position guys, but I'm just, you know, when Oregon State runs the ball 19 times in a row against him, how are they going to stop him? John, one last thing, man. You put down Shadur because he comes from the HBC, but you don't. Uh, you forget that um, Walter Payton came from HBC. 
And I love, Jerry I love Rice sweetness. The, I, and Jerry, Jerry Rice, Rice was came, my guy. Jerry, it's not has it, nothing to do with with where they came from. I'm just saying he's going to be running for his life back there. No, he's not. John, John, before I go, man, I'm putting money down. I want to set up an account with you, and I'm taking all bets this year, <laughs> man, on Colorado. You, you should just I'm go serious. to Vegas. If you think they're going to win more than four games, you can clean up. That's the over-under four right now. John, I'm serious in a heart attack, man. They're going to win, man. I, hey, Trust look, I, I would be happy to be wrong because, look, I love that Colorado is invested in football. I love it. Like, this is what you should do if you're a program that, you know, let's face it, Colorado was a bottom feeder for a decade. You know, they came into the conference with Utah, and they did nothing that Utah did it, until now. And they've done something dynamic. And I'm glad that fans are buying season tickets. And I, I'm telling you, I'm really toying with going to that opener at TCU. Like in week one, instead of being with Oregon or Oregon State, I'm toying with, hey, I'll, I'll just go to Texas and I, I want to see Coach Prime in his first game. I want to see it up close. Bill but, Connolly at ESPN, sorry, John, he wrote a yeah. nice article projecting basically the roster for Colorado going forward um, with all the transfers coming in. And, and you're right. Like he even talks about in the article, the offensive line is a total crapshoot right now like they have no idea what it's going to be now you know mike's talking about the skill positions yes they got that they got some linebackers that were transfers from big time schools yes but it's the offensive line that you talk about that they really didn't address very well right it's, it's a couple guys from kent state uh a couple guys from jackson state like a couple holdovers from the team before so like that's really going to be the difference if shador you know gets the ball out quickly which he likes to do you know, if he gets hurt, they got no depth at quarterback yeah. either. So I think there's a couple things right there. But uh, it's a nice little article, kind of showing yeah. like what the guys did last season, what they're kind of projecting. Hey, look, I want to hear from you your questions. It's a Friday. We've opened the line. You want to talk about media rights, NIL transfer portal. You want to talk about what you think Colorado's going to do on the field. How about Bo Nix? Uh, I'll take all questions in the next segment. Five zero three four one seven seventy five seventy five. I guess we could give Fridays a cool name, like it's a uh, it's a free for all Friday. You get to ask you ask questions. You want to talk whatever you want to talk about is what we talk about. You can call in, like if you want to uh, you want to tell me you think Chipotle is the best uh, the best fast food that's out there. We can have that discussion. We'll have it. My college uh, sophomore would not disagree with you. It's her favorite. I uh, I was not a fan, but if she's going, I'll go with her. Uh, but uh, if you want to talk college football, you want to talk about the Pac-12 Conference, you want to talk about Colorado, you want to talk about Bo Nix, let's have at it. I do have one line open at 503-417-7575. Mark's in Portland. Go ahead, Mark. Hey, how's it going? Once once again, you're, you you let Mike off easy because he just calls in completely in the blind. I mean, to say that Bo Nix uh, couldn't cut it in the SEC, he had 7,400 yards passing in three years, 39 touchdowns, 16 picks. Uh, his stats aren't bad at all, John. He had a, over a hundred passer rating in all those seasons. So he he was a successful quarterback in the SEC. The guy coming to Oregon State that was in the ACC, you could use that argument, but you can't really use it for Bo Nix. He was the starter there. He was going to be the starter if he didn't leave. So he made a decision to come to Oregon, and you know he's played better because uh, he had such a great year last year. Um, and you know the SEC def- defenses are better, but he to say he didn't cut it is is a is a is not correct statement in my opinion and yeah, also yeah. you should bet him put him make him put it put his money where his mouth is i will bet mike that that, that 
Colorado doesn't get more than six wins this year, and the Ducks beat them by double digits. So let's, let's see if he put, wants to put his money where his mouth is. Any amount of money he wants to bet on it. <laughs> I got a, I got a good one. If people want to place a wager and then with each other, friendly wager, but the loser has to donate to the BFT Foundation, that wouldn't be bad. Yeah, absolutely. You know, everybody absolutely. gets a tax write-off. Do it with your friends. Baldfacetruth.org. There you go. Mark in Portland, appreciate you, man. I don't want to get in the business of being a sports book. I don't I don't want to invite like a Department of Justice investigation into this radio show where we are fostering wages wagers between uh, listeners. But uh you know, it's not a bad thing. Like if Mark in Portland and Mike want to have a wager between uh, between them and they go, "Okay, the loser has to make a donation to the BFT Foundation." Um the kids of the BFT Foundation win. And somebody gets bragging rights. It's not a bad idea. Uh, back out to the phone lines. Let's go to Ken in Portland. Ken, what's on your mind? A couple of things, John. First off, uh, 100% agree with what Mark just said. Um, one other thing that Mike got wrong, um, Coach Prime isn't bringing any SEC team to the Pac-12. He's bringing a SWAC team, enhanced, albeit. But it was a SWAC team. He's never coached in the SEC I think he's going to learn that with the step up, maybe there's a little bit of um, uh, changes that he's going to have to go through because he's not going to win, you know, 75, 80% of his games. Uh, second thing is, is it's, I'm glad to, to see you writing and to read that we're finally nearing the end of the whole media rights existential uh, issues. Hopefully they'll be done here in the next couple of weeks. When that happens, I think that Kleoptov needs to start going on the offensive. One of the things, Brent Yormack, love him or hate the guy, the one thing you got to uh, say is he's got balls and he's aggressive. And we need to see our commissioners start to get aggressive. And one of the things that I really want to see, I'm tired of hearing that we've lost the L.A. media market. That's bull. What we've lost is UCLA and USC. But I'll be willing to bet that of the remaining pack. 12 fan bases, the largest concentration of alumni in any city in this country live in L.A. And I think that we need to start uh, contemplating putting three to five Pac-10 games per year in SoFi Stadium, and we need to announce the schedule on August 3rd, 2024, the day after USC and UCLA leave this conference. But it's time for Kleoptov to start going on the offensive. Yeah, I've wondered, you know, look, his personality, he's a collegial guy, but I think he's got some fangs to him. But I, I kind of wondered in the last year or so how much of what we've seen from George Klyovkov or haven't seen is being dictated by his board. The presidents and chancellors of the conference appear to be collegial, thoughtful. They want the door left open for UCLA, no doubt, in case the Bruins decide after four or five years that – They've had enough of the Big Ten and are ready to come back. Maybe the landscape of college athletics has changed to the point where there's further consolidation among the schools, and it doesn't matter if you're in the Big Ten all of a sudden. I don't know what it's going to look like in a decade or two decades. I kind of fear what it's going to look like in a decade or two decades. And, in fact, coming up at 4 o'clock, we're going to get a visit from Pat Kilkenny, the former Oregon athletic director. And the reason why I'm bringing this up now, it it just registered with me. He's a businessman. He is a visionary. He's built insurance companies. He's bought them. He's sold them. He's built them. He, uh, you know, he, he owns a tequila company. He's uh, made some investments in media. 
uh, he was, you know, he's the person behind, uh, you know, or a lot of Oregon success. Hiring of Dana Altman, the building of Matthew Knight Arena, PK Park, where they're going to be holding this three-game super regional series against Oral Roberts beginning today for a trip to Omaha. And I'm going to ask him what he thinks is going to happen in the future of college athletics. What is college football going to look like in 10 or 20 years? That's a good question. Ryan is in Salem. Ryan, welcome to the conversation. Hey, John. So, yeah, I'm a Colorado uh, native, uh, a CU alum, and I'm really excited about CU, not not just because Prime is there, but just because it signifies a change in terms of CU leadership. I mean, we're, we're notorious for just, you know, the CU as a school not really giving football and sports in general really the money and the respect it's always needed. I think Sean Kelly, the offensive coordinator, is going to make a, a huge difference. I think he's like the first assistant coach he's had that's actually had a salary over a million dollars, which is why we've always lost any good uh, uh, assistant coach we've ever had. So I think it's hopefully a trend upwards. I'm cautiously optimistic. I, I mean, I'm not crazy. I don't think we're going to have you know, I don't see the season or anything, but I do see it uh, trending upward. So uh, thank you. I appreciate the call. Yeah, I do think there's. A, it's funny to hear Colorado fans sounding a little bit like Oregon State fans. You know, there were Oregon State fans who last season, as Oregon State began to win games and move towards a 10-win season, I almost heard uh, it wasn't – it was a very different reaction than Oregon fans as they were moving toward a 10-win season, like dramatically different. The Oregon fans were disappointed. The Oregon State fans were almost, I don't want to say apologetic because they weren't, but they were really enjoying each win. And it didn't matter if it was Washington State. It didn't matter if, you know, it wasn't a great win. A win was a great win. And I heard that, uh, I think Colorado is kind of in that position where um, you have the ability to see an investment in your program. You get excited because coach prime's there but steven on that note all right i hope the colorado fans enjoy the limelight right now i hope um they are patient with coach prime like oregon state was patient with jonathan smith to a point and i hope that um they do appreciate the wins when they start to come because for jonathan smith the wins did not come easy and it was a slower build but look where he is now on that note, Stephen, how long does Coach Prime at Colorado win or lose? Ooh, um, I'm going to say three years. Three years. I'll go three. I'll give him this year because you know, I'm. I wouldn't say that I think Colorado is going to be good this year, John. But I would say I would bet the over on their win total. I, I think they go over four. I think they sneak out a win over somebody that they're probably not supposed to. I think they get five, maybe even six. Uh, but I don't think they're going to be great. So I, I think. This year, and then one more year, and it'll be about three years until they're really competing and have all you know the talent. If they're really competing for Pac-12 titles, and then I think Dion would be out at that point. Yeah, and I think you know if you're Colorado, let's just say if you're Colorado, you want to keep him. Isn't the better thing for him to really have the shine knocked off him this season, and then a slower build? Let's say he gets to five or six wins in year two. He's bowl eligible. Everybody celebrates that. And then in year three, you know, maybe he wins eight. Like, you just what you don't want is 
he goes out and wins 10 games in year two, forget it. He's gone. Somebody, somebody, Florida State, somebody in the SEC, somebody's going to come after him. I just think a little bit of the shine coming off him, to just to leave some doubt, like, hey, if you don't have resources, if you don't pour into the program, uh, I don't think that's Colorado's worst nightmare. I don't know. No, I, I agree with you. I, it's it's tough because we we haven't we've seen things like this, right? USC they brought in a lot of guys last season and it worked, but we haven't seen anything like this with the transformation of the roster. We've seen it in basketball; it's worked, but we've never seen it in football. And so, how quickly can they get these guys together? And then, you know, as you've said before, you've talked to coaches like, is Coach Prime a good football coach? He's a good recruiter. He's a good social media guy. He's a good promoter. But can he actually coach football? I think that's the question that needs to be asked because you know we asked the same thing about Dan Lanning, great recruiter, but can he actually coach the X's and O's on the on the field? It seems like he probably can do it with his you know his uh, history at Georgia as the defensive coordinator. And Coach Prime seems like he may be able to, but it was at Jackson State. It's a different level. So, I mean, if you're yeah, you're Colorado, you're happy with where you're at right now because everyone's talking about you. There's a lot of hype. But is it going to be sustainable for the whole season? Is it just hype or is it actually substance? I'm excited, though, man. I mean, I Colorado is so fascinated to me. And I, like I said, I think they're over four wins, Johnny. I think they're four or five wins. But would it surprise you if they're at two? No, it wouldn't. It wouldn't surprise me if, if USC and Oregon score 100 points against them in the first two weeks of the conference well, season. Because that's the you thing. Know? Are people going to be running it up on them because they're tired of hearing about them? I kind of feel that way, and I, you know, look, I had one Pac-12 head coach who told me, you know, I said, what do you think about Colorado? And they said, well, he has hired a head coach on the offensive side in Sean Lewis. He's hired a defensive head coach, uh, and, you know, Coach Prime is out front. Let him do his thing. But um, I just wonder, from a recruiting standpoint, Oregon and USC have heard a lot about Colorado. What happens in week four? at Autzen Stadium. What happens in week five when Lincoln Riley goes to Boulder? And do those programs not just try to beat Colorado, but try to send a message to recruits? Like, hey, they're they're not close. And I just I just wonder. 503-417-7575. Pat Kilkenny coming up top of the hour. People may not remember. He was uh, he was a booster. He's like the number two booster at Oregon behind uh, Phil and Penny Knight. I don't think there's any shame in that. But uh, in 2007, in the wake of Bill Moose leaving or being nudged out of his position as athletic director in Eugene, um, people may remember Phil Knight uh, standing up at a football banquet and booing Bill Moose. That was kind of the beginning of the end of the Bill Moose era. But uh, Pat Kilkenny took over as athletic director. Now, the AD at Oregon, Oregon State, these guys make 700000 800000 uh, You know, they approach a million dollars, those AD positions. And uh, Pat Kilkenny uh, at Oregon in 2007, 2008, 2009, and into 2010 took a salary that was a mandatory minimum. Uh, he tried to go to work for nothing. They paid him $25,000. I think he netted like a dollar in the end, because he donated it back to the university. Kilkenny hired Dana Altman. He built Matthew Knight Arena with Phil and Penny's help, uh, obviously. He resurrected baseball. He hired a golf coach. 
He oversaw sort of the pivot point of Oregon sports. He was also um, instrumental in building PK Park. I believe Penny Knight has a deep, rich history with baseball, particularly in Corvallis, the Corvallis Knights. And so there was some love for baseball coming from the Knight family and some obvious love for baseball coming from Pat Kilkenny. But he will join us uh, coming up at 4 o'clock to talk about uh, his time as athletic director and sort of what he, uh, he, what he feels now as Mark Wasikowski's program sits on the cusp of a berth to Omaha. Eight teams will get to Omaha, Oregon in the Super Regional, hosting Oral Roberts, Best of three series, we'll see what happens. Uh, I think it would be big. It would be huge, obviously, for Oregon to get to Omaha. This is a program that for 27 seasons, after 1981, they dropped baseball. For 27 seasons, they did not field the team, even when they brought it back. You know, and I'm going to ask Kilkenny this. Like, was it Oregon State? Was it the influence of Pat Casey? Because keep in mind, as Kilkenny's on the job in 07, 08, 09, Oregon State's winning back-to-back national championships. Was that a motivating factor? I know Kilkenny and Pat Casey are friends. Like, did that play a role in Kilkenny going, you know what, damn it, we need to uh, we need to have a baseball team as well. I'll also ask him, Stephen, I'm going to ask him the question we've been dwelling on. He knows, he knows Phil Knight. What kind of NBA owner would Phil Knight be? What would that mean? And by the way, rich people problems. You got Jody Allen, seemingly a billionaire, uh, mixing it up with Phil Knight, a mega billionaire, over a basketball team that was formerly owned by a billionaire of the uh, richest man in the world at one time uh, status. So, again, I had someone in the NBA, a team president, tell me there's nothing that wealthy people like to tell other wealthy people more than go pound sand. Is this just a case of Jody Allen telling Phil Knight, go pound sand, or is there something else going on there? I'm going to ask him what Phil Knight's uh, influence would be and what his impact would be as an owner. I mean, that would be would be kind of a cool feeling to tell Phil Knight off like that, right? Like, to have that power. I mean, Phil Knight, how inspirational and influential he has been in the world, and be like, no, you know what? I'm going to do what I want. We're not going to give in to you. I don't know. It would be kind of a power move. Yeah, I guess. But is that is that really a, what you want to do? Like, I don't know. I wouldn't want to do it. I mean, yeah. I, you know, but some people some people love the power, I guess. I I think, too, like, I take a – like, I, I think I have a, a more holistic approach to that, you know, and I think that from my standpoint – I always, I always try to like leave things better than I found them. It's it's one of the reasons why. Okay, I have this weird thing, and Anna gets on me about it because Anna grew up very sort of like communal, right? There is community when you are raised in, uh, you know, Portland over in Park Rose with uh, a motel that your family's running on Sandy Boulevard in 115. And it was a rough area of town, and you're you're stuck at the motel, and your parents are working the motel, and you're 11 years old, and you're checking people in at the front desk, and you I almost think like you have to have like a very community based approach when you're in that setting, because you will rely on your neighbors, you'll rely on the family down the street, you'll rely on the other motel across the street, you're kind of all in it together, 
as you manage, you know, what is a really tricky, you know, endeavor to be in charge of. And, and as a result, and, you know, Anna and her family, her mom in particular, like when they visit, her mom will talk to the neighbors in a way that I don't, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like she'll borrow something from the neighbor and I'll go, but we have that. Why do you need, like, I have a shovel. You don't need to borrow a shovel. I have a weird thing where I don't like to borrow from people because I don't, li- I don't want to mess somebody else's shovel up. I don't want to lose, you know, a piece of their, you know, electrical record- cord that I borrow. I don't want to borrow the ladder from the neighbor. I, 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 and maybe I'm weird that way. It, but if I do borrow something, let's say I borrow the ladder and it's muddy, I will clean it up before I bring it back because I just I don't want to be in a position where I'm beholden to somebody and I certainly don't want to be in a position where I'd borrow something and then return it and there's this thing like you know you didn't return it in as good a shape as you took it and so if I owned the Blazers or if I was the trustee let's put a more realistic spin on it I'm the trustee of the Blazers I would take a holistic approach to that. I'd want to give it to the next o- the next owner and the next best possible owner, especially because I'm not netting from the sale. She's not getting a dime in the sale. What's in it for her? You know, why not just take the holistic approach and go, hey, what's right here is to think about the fan base and to think about giving this franchise and selling this franchise for a fair market value, enough money, but sell it to somebody who's really going to take care of it, elevate it, leave it in the best possible position. You know, and I just don't get the impression that Jody Allen and Burt Cold, the vice chair of the franchise, give a rip about that stuff. Let's go to the phones. D's in Portland. D, welcome to the conversation. Hey, John. How's it going, man? Going all right. Oh, uh, yeah, man. You're, you're, you're spot on with everything you said. Uh, but it's for a Blazer fan for me since. 99, 2000 year. It's just so frustrating because, like, it's not their team. Yeah, the whole trust thing and everything, it was, like, handed down to them. But it's, like, it's not their team, and and they're just holding on to it. And it's, like, for me and my friends and my coworkers, it's, like, we have no faith that they're going to turn this around because it's always spinning around. Oh, it's always next year, this and that. But it's never – anything it's like and i and i don't understand why you don't want to just give it up you're going to get the money you know let someone else you know have a crack at it and it's just it's just so frustrating man like and i don't get it uh, john do you know by any chance when it will sell like next year two years from now three years from now I, you know, look, here's the bottom line. Here's, you know, I wrote about this recently, D. You might want to check it out at johnconzano.com. But, you know, a, a big piece of this, the why, why isn't she returning a call? Why not now? I think it could be answered in a number of ways. But the one that I have settled on is as I talk with estate attorneys that handle large estates, in the, in, in particular the state of Washington, they tell me that the trustee can collect by state law a reasonable management fee. Now, I asked what the range of that is. It uh, starts at about 5% of the total estate's value, and it, and it scales down to about 2% if they're massive, massive, uh, you know, estates. But, uh, you know, given that it's a pro sports franchise that, that requires some management, 
Uh, I believe Jody Allen is, you know, probably, you know, entitled to a management fee simply by holding the Blazers. Now, keep in mind, I said it earlier, she gets nothing when the team is sold. I don't think she's in any hurry because if the Blazers are valued at $3 billion, there's a pretty fair chance that uh, Jody Allen is collecting a management fee somewhere in the range of $60, $90, 150000000 dollars a year just to do nothing. Uh, and by do nothing, I mean she still has to act as, air quotes here, owner of the team. But think about the totality of his estate and the Seahawks being in it. And you're talking about billions upon billions. And I, I don't know, I'd be hard-pressed to pull out what the Blazers' management fee is. But you better be sure there's a motivating factor somewhere in this. So, D, as I look at this, you know, the Blazers should be sold already. And I said it earlier this week. I think the best chance that Blazers fans have of going free when it comes to the Trailblazers' ownership mess is somehow convincing Adam Silver, the NBA commissioner, to go public. And I suspect that Phil Knight, who knows Adam Silver well, is not out public talking about all this stuff, making his offer public without the blessing of Adam Silver. Again, keep in mind, you know who Adam Silver is. He is... You know, his weapon of choice, it's not a sledgehammer. He's a scalpel guy, okay? He he back channels. And so I really do believe that at some point Adam Silver will leverage Jody Allen, put some pressure on the trustee. Uh, it, it does not behoove this uh, league and the franchise to, to be out of Phil Knight's hands. Like, uh, the NBA wants Phil Knight to own the Blazers, don't they? I want you to leave it here. Pat Kilkenny coming up next. People may not remember the genesis of old Oregon baseball, but I sure remember when it came back. And I know the guy that we're having on here as our guest uh, is is the driving force for bringing, bringing baseball back to Oregon. Pat Kilkenny, former Oregon athletic director, uh, booster, man of the world, rancher in Hepner, Oregon, uh, joining us now. How are you? How are you, Pat? I'm great, John. I'm excited. It's just a very exciting day for for those of us interested in Oregon baseball. Yeah, it's it's neat to see this happen, but I, I it got me thinking. You know, we had Waz on Monday's show, and you know, I, I saw you on the field at the Pac-12 tournament, and saw you give him a hug at the at the ceremony. But you know, how did that feel to you to see this breakthrough in in the in this team in this program playing in the postseason? Oh, it, it's yeah, you know, if, uh, it's hard to even put it into words because they're such a great group of kids. You know, with a coaching staff that's, you know, extraordinary the chemistry, everything about it is something that would make, you know, if people were as aware of it as I am, would make you proud to be associated with Oregon baseball. The the idea, you know, when did it first cross your mind that Oregon needed to have baseball back? Oh, uh, <laughs> it wasn't something that, that I thought about. I, I think what happened when, when, when Bill was, uh, Moose was moving on is the baseball community, the people that were passionate about it, uh, well, maybe we've got this new guy that that he doesn't know what he's doing. If we if we hit him quick and fast and hard, you know, maybe we can convince him and to you know reinvent or bringing baseball back. And so my schedule, uh, my calendar started to fill up with you know interested parties about baseball and and you know that's uh, so it was really early on, probably the first month I was in, that I took the job. Moose leaves in 07. You take over in 2007. Correct me if I'm wrong. I think you took like a dollar in salary because they made you do it. And, you know, I, and I think you did this more as a philanthropic thing. What made you do that? 
Well, my love for Dave Fromeyer to start with, and, you know, he he's such an extraordinary human being. He spent his whole life giving back, and you know, as a civil servant, and and he was really difficult to say no to. In fact, I would say, you know, nearly impossible. And and you know, the the school, the state, everything about it had always been very kind to me. And and you know, there was a window in t- in my life that I actually had some bandwidth to do something new. And and yeah, you know, I. My wife wasn't crazy about it. We had, you know, we had a good situation in San Diego, but but she came up and embraced it and really made a big difference, you know, in terms of, you know, moving the needle for Oregon athletics. Everybody, because it's not just it's not something that just one person can do. If you, you know, your your family has to be involved. So, Matthew Knight Arena gets built on your watch. PK Park gets built on your watch. The PK Park part fly, flew a little bit under the radar, but I'm now thinking like that was a really important. Uh, you know, investment and construction project. The you know what went into that? How difficult was that to get that ballpark done? Well, it was really difficult because the, we had exhausted our bonding uh, authority and ability within the state of Oregon by building the arena. And there's a percentage, and I gosh, you know, I, you know, I would misspeak if I said what it was, but it. Uh, so we didn't. We had to get creative on the financing to get it done, and and we actually went to a private sector bank and. Did, did something fairly unusual and and you know and during a period of time when unemployment was high that was, was during the great recession and uh, but it was very difficult extremely difficult pat kilkenny with us longtime oregon booster donor athletic director you know i mentioned your upbringing in hepner your dad obviously a a, a titan in eastern oregon and what did that experience growing up in that small town do for you as a person Oh, I think I think our roots are always, you know, at the core of who we are when we gr- we grow up. I'm not sure I ever grew up, but uh, it was fabulous. You know, we didn't lock our doors. We didn't. We left our keys in our car, and and that all seemed to be, you know, we thought everybody that way. And you took care of your neighbors. They took care of you. Um, you know, it was a great childhood. You know, you because uh, schools were small, you got to play a lot of different sports and. And get involved in you know what every element of you know of that part of your life and and, and I was blessed to have really you know a really good family that was incredibly supportive and um, yeah it was you know all it does is make me smile when I think about those years and I know that you have a love for baseball you've been very close to the Padres community and of course the uh, the uh, genesis of or the rebirth of baseball at Oregon but did you play baseball as a kid where did you find the love for the game? Oh, yeah, probably more in San Diego because it's such a beautiful climate. You know, I mean, I, I did play, but uh, and uh, uh, San Diego, you know, when you there's probably no better place to go watch a game. It's 70 degrees and and, you know, it's a beautiful climate. You know, we had a when I first started going to Pottery Games, they were out at Mission Valley and then they, they built a great park in downtown San Diego. And um and you know, I was single and had a lot of free time. I would go to thirty or forty or even fifty games a year, and and you know, it's a great place to go hang out with friends. And and as anybody that follows a game, it's it's pretty intellectually stimulating. It's kind of a giant chessboard, and there's all kinds of things to debate. And yet, also, it's a pastime. And you know, friends, family, food, uh, refreshment, all the good things. What do you think the pitch clock has done? Is it uh, you got an opinion on the pitch clock? Yeah, it was much needed. I, 
you know, I don't know that that was the exact right, you know, metric to, to move, but it's certainly, I think it's 25 minutes quicker. And I, I was getting so I couldn't even watch the pro game anymore because, I, you know, as you get older, your patience level starts to wane. And, and uh, yeah, no, I think it's helpful. And, I, and, the, and it seems like most all of them are catching up to it. The owner of the Padres is on our foundation board. And so I get an opportunity to talk to him a lot about baseball and, and, you know, and people associated, you know, with the Padres and some other people that, you know, Dave Roberts has become somebody that I'm friendly with now, too. And so it's uh, they, they seem to be good with it. Pat Kilkenny with us, former Oregon Athletic Director and uh, donor and booster. Uh, you and I have talked about Pat Casey and the success story that Oregon State Baseball was. It, was that ringing in your mind as you bring baseball to Oregon? Did did seeing his success go, hey, you know, Oregon could do that too. You can win in the Pacific Northwest. Well, it wasn't directly because, like I said, it wasn't something that I was thinking about. And, I, you know, and, and Dave Frommeyer at some point fairly early on, and for a lot of reasons that I won't, you know, go into today, but, you know, gave me a thumbs up and said, hey, you know, pursue it, you know, see, you know, if you can craft something. You know, there's Title IX issues. There's lots of there's lots of hurdles, but uh, and the Oregon State success was going on in the background, and I, you know, I was very aware of it, and and quite frankly, really proud of what they'd done there. And how do you not like that David versus Goliath? And Casey, you know, I got to know him through the GM of the Padres, who was a good friend of his, Kevin Towers from Medford, and and you know, and, you know how do you not like Pat Casey also? And um, you know, I mean, we're not going to root for him when we're playing him, but, but, uh, but yeah, I, I don't think it was a lot. I mean, I, I know that, you know, a lot of the, the media attributed our interest in competing with Oregon State, but, you know, I was just focused on trying to, you know, bring Oregon back, you know, and, and all the, as I said, all the impediments that we're dealing with. So, what do, you know, the job of AD, because you step into that role. And I can't think of another example in the country, in the history of sports, where uh, you know a booster goes, you know what, I'll I'll do this and I'll take it on, and you end up two years, two thousand seven to two thousand nine. I think you know the exact number of days probably that you served in that job. But what do what do the rest of us not know about the job of an AD? Well, it's not as cool and sexy as people think it is. It's. At the University of Oregon, it, it was a, a little polarizing because of what you just, you know, attributed the inmates running the asylum, if you will. And uh, and campus wasn't exactly excited about uh, the investments we were making into athletics and the vision for Oregon athletics. And, you know, I think they felt that the, the investments sh- should have been made more on campus and less, you know, on the athletic side. But the vision, and it was primarily Phil Knight's vision, was you know losing ties raises all boats and it did too the the admission scores the the uh, GPAs the number of applications at the University of Oregon if you follow it it's kind of a lot like Gonzaga did with you know with their athletic particularly with basketball you know everything was elevated because of the investments that were made in in uh, Oregon athletics you mentioned uh, and, and it was you know it was it was tough because. You know, I spent half my life over on campus and trying to get them to understand the vision, and and it was it was and we had a fabulous group of you know faculty members and, and a handful that quite frankly should have been thrown out of there, but <laughs> but with ten, but with tenure you can't do it, and um, but you know I, I mean that side of it was was uh, was eye opening for me and and, and and frankly fairly frustrating on a daily basis, but 
Um, but it, it, but we got through it. You know, I wasn't in Afghanistan, Afghanistan fighting a war. I was in beautiful Eugene, Oregon, yeah. going to work every day. So yeah, and I, I and I always tell people, you know, people will say, hey, you know, why are the coaches getting paid so much? Why are why such investment in football? And I go, you know, show me people who are buying tickets to go see a you know a lecture on campus, and you know, show me a. Uh, Show me a, a department that is generating, you know, a hundred million dollars in revenue, and and we can have that conversation. Like, it's it, it always confused me and frustrated me as well, and it still does when I see sometimes the academic side not understanding how athletics can be your front porch. Yeah, and truly, particularly at a place like Oregon, you know, I when we did a basketball search, one of the candidates I talked to didn't know whether we were in Corvallis or Eugene. So, you know, we had we had we didn't have a, an identity at that point in time, and we have a national brand now. Everybody knows the University of Oregon, and it's you know, respectfully, it's off the back of our athletic program. In the meantime, the Knights have invested in nanoscience. The Bombers have made an incredible investment, and in, you know, in in. Uh, in in a niche that that's long past due and being able to, you know, help, you know, mental health issues. And, and, you know, and, and I think everybody knows, you know, what Steve Ballmer is a very passionate, you know, sports fan too. So, and Connie. And so, you know, all, all of that's synergistic. And I, I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I think they are, they are connected at the hip. It's just that, you know, people don't understand the grander vision and the fact that the, the collaboration is really powerful. Uh, the coaching salaries and all that stuff, yeah, they are what they are, but it is American, it is capitalism, and and you and I don't get a vote, and, and you just said it, and people pay big prices to watch sports, and and it really moves the needle financially, and, and you know, that's it's competitive. Pat, you, you mentioned Phil Knight a couple times, and, you know, he is uh, on record saying, you know, he would like to own the Trailblazers. What would he be like as an NBA owner? He'd be fabulous. Uh, Phil is, he, he, he surrounds himself with amazing people. He's, and he, he's done that all his adult life. And he allows, you know, to make sure they have the tools and resources that they need. And then, and he gets the heck out of their way. You know, he's a, certainly is very aware of, you know, whatever the, you know, the goals are and, the, and, and whatever the controls are. And if things are going off the rails, you know, he's the first to chime in, you know, whatever it is that, you know, wherever sensitivities are. But a lot of these owners, you know, and I've talked to Chip Kelly a fair amount about his experience in the NFL, is these, these owners are intrusive. They, you know, they try to do things they can't spell. And quite frankly, stand, stand in a way of success for the, you know, the general managers and the coaches. And but Phil would not do that. You know, he knows what he knows. He's quite comfortable in his own skin. And, uh, he absolutely loves the state of Oregon. He loves the University of Oregon. He's given a lot of money to Oregon State, which you know he probably wouldn't appreciate you know me even talking about. But but you know, in Portland states, you know, it's uh, all of that's important to him. Yeah, and I think you know it, the confusion now is you know the trustee of the estate. Why won't she take his call? And you know, I get it. Sometimes wealthy people like to tell other wealthy people to pound sand, but uh, I think she should take that call and. You know, if she cares at all about the franchise, entertain, you know, listen to what he has to say, right? Yeah, I mean, time's a wasting, and people do, you know, get disinterested. And, and you, as you pointed out, it's an expensive ticket. And, you know, and at some point in time, the fan base starts to dissipate, too, and because there's so many other media options, particularly given all the 
you know, digital world, you know, that we're all you know, learning to understand and, and, you know, exist within. But yeah, I, I don't understand that. I don't know the person at all. And I don't want to be critical of people. I don't know, but, but it sure seems like, um, she, she should hand it off. Particularly if somebody like Phil Knight would just be a great steward too, you know, cause they are community assets. They're not just capital assets for rich people, but, but those those assets belong to the community, and you know, and when they when the charters move, I mean, it's it really is uh, something that that sends shockwaves through a community. I just you know, it's something that a lot of people really care a lot about. PK Park will be the site of the Super Regional, uh, Oregon against Oral Roberts. Uh, first team to two wins gets a trip to Omaha. What would it mean to you? What would it mean to the program to Oregon fans to see? Mark Wasikowski and that team get to get to Omaha. You know, you just gave me goosebumps, so I guess that's a <laughs> start of an answer. So, uh, you know, it, it, when when I walked into Rose Bowl on January first, nineteen ninety five, and saw our, you know Oregon in the end zone, you know, th- those things are, you know, when you're young, they're not going to happen. When we went to Phoenix for the Final Four with Dana and his special group, and you know, those things don't happen to Oregon. You know, we've now played for national championships and. A lot of sports, you know, Casey won a national championship in golf and, and you know, the women's basketball played, played at a high level. There's been so much good going on, but, but this baseball thing, you know, it's new. You know, we didn't play it for, I think it was 27 years. And, and there are so many people that care so much about it. And, and at the, you know, and, you know, George came and helped us lay a great foundation and, and, you know, and then, you know, uh, and actually, the the uh, alumni group of baseball players really got behind Waz, and I think gave you know the university administration a you know a, a significant nudge about bringing Waz in as their head coach. And and gosh, was that a great hire! And then his assistant coaches, uh, you know, Martyr and Thomas and others, or uh, Daryl Hunter, they're all ex Ducks, part of the original group. So it's you know it's kind of a Disney story. You know, there's there's not a darn thing wrong. I actually went to Nashville too, and and uh, go down there and beat Vanderbilt on their field, and and uh, we actually talked to Tim Corbin, Corbin about coming to Oregon. So you know, we have great familiarity. You know, I mean, that is Vanderbilt's the gold standard in college baseball, in my opinion. And and the kids have a lot of confidence. They're playing at a high level, and yeah, I mean, at this point, as you just said, they won two games, and and then and there's a there's an opportunity. I'm pretty certain Oregon State was a sixth seed when they won it their second time. Yeah. I mean, we've seen sometimes the last team in, whoever's playing great baseball uh, can win this thing. Uh, game one uh, tonight coming up at 5 o'clock, ESPNU. Pat, before I let you go, uh, you know, the realignment uh, in college football, I, I got I to gotta know what you think of what's happening. And then you have a great business sense. You've built companies. Uh, you've built huge and successful companies. Uh, you are visionary in that way. Tell me what you think college football is going to look like in a decade or two decades from now. Well, I mean, if you look at, you know, and I don't like this outcome, but, but I do think there's going to be meaningful consolidation because what's going on with these, the realignment is, is, is effectively consolidation, but they're trying to, you know, it's low-hanging fruit. So they go pick Texas and Oklahoma and then, you know, USC and UCLA and, and the, you know, the, the one and one equals a much greater number when you move those into these these other conferences, and but I, ultimately it begs for an NFL model because the NFL model, if you look at the 
the demographics and the economic outcomes in terms of media contracts are multiples of what college football is. It's because it's, they're all consolidated. And, and so there's one media deal that gets done or two media deals that get done, and you have a lot more power you know, in negotiating deals. So, uh, And that's what the SEC is doing. That's what the Big Ten's successfully done. And and so it, there's it, there's going to be a, a gap between the haves and have-nots, and and I don't know what that looks like. You know, I've seen a model where there's 100 schools involved. I've seen a model where there's 50 involved. But uh, it, it, the thing that's disappointing is the Rose Bowl and, and the, you know, the you know the regional rivalries and, and, you know, the bowl games and all the things we all grew up in, you know, get kicked to the curb because, you know, of the almighty dollar. And, and that's the disappointing part to me. But, but it's, you know, at this point, but, you know, as they say, the genie's out of the bottle, and there's no way they're gonna they're gonna bring it back. And shame on the NCAA for letting a lot of this happen, quite frankly. And um, you know, because they just did not do a good job of of uh, leading. Now, I hope you get a good seat at PK Park uh, for, <laughs> for this thing. <laughs> yeah, well, Stephanie and I are leaving here, and before too terribly long, we are going to be fairly noisy fans, and my all my siblings and. And friends are coming, so yeah, it's going to be a great day to be a duck, and and a place will be rocking, that's for sure. Pat Kilkenny, thank you so much for giving us your time. Yeah, my pleasure, John. Thanks. There he is, Pat Kilkenny, uh, PK Park uh, tonight, site of Game One as Oregon eyes a trip to Omaha. Leave it here. You got the bald face truth statewide on the BFT Radio Network. Great stuff with Pat Kilkenny. You want a, a podcast of that interview? Uh, we'll have it in real time shortly uh get a podcast of this radio show uh, wherever you find a podcast and if you're listening on the podcast right now in real time wherever you may be could be the middle of the night maybe you're walking the dock like mike leach used to do when he would listen to the show maybe you are uh, out for a run um reach down and hit the subscribe button make a commitment you know like doesn't cost you anything just subscribe follow you'll get all of the podcast episodes in real time I'm going to take a quick call, then we're going to go right into Punch It Audio. Mike in Seattle's called in. He wants to talk about the Bill Walton 30 for 30 documentary. Two episodes in, Bill. What do you think? Excuse me, Mike. What do you think? Oh, unbelievable, John. I, I, and I don't say unbelievable that often. It is unbelievable. Did you see the first two yet? I've seen all four, but I don't want to oh, be a spoiler. God. I don't want to be okay, a spoiler, but, yeah, it no. gets better. It, it it can't get any better. It gets as a better. Kid growing up in okay, as a kid growing up in Portland, born in 1957, I'm an Oregon State fan, Blazer fan, fan of the of, of everything. It's unbelievable you know, to see Bill in that in that documentary of his life, and as it pertains to his upbringing. You know, they interview his mother at her house with her yarn and coloring books. Uh, they go, you know, he goes to his high school basketball coach's house, goes back to Portland, goes to Wallace Park and walks on the basketball coach or court, and there's some kids shooting hoops, and he starts talking to them about playing basketball and giving them little life lessons. The best part, though, is about his three grown, or is it four grown sons? I think, uh, you know, we haven't seen most of them on camera talking about their dad ever and how he used to write on their uh, on their sandwich bag, 
you know, be quick, but don't hurry. I love that. Unbelievable. So everybody in Portland uh, and can hear it on 750 The Game here, they've got to find that documentary and get caught up on the first two. Now, you got to go back, back. Mike. We we had earlier in the week, this week or last week, we had the guy who who did the documentary on the show. Oh, did you? Okay, yeah. because I heard Paul Knowles the other day. Yeah, you heard uh, Paul, and, and and yeah, yeah, and that's what that's what got me think. Oh, geez, you know, there's oh that documentary is coming out. That's right, and and did they have the watch party the other night? And no, the watch the watch party it? is for, the watch party that they're having is taking place uh, next week for the final two episodes. Okay. But we oh. had the guy who was Steve James, who was the yeah. Um, was the uh, 30 for 30. You know, he did Hoop Dreams. He's done a whole bunch of other big-time projects. We had him on the show. Go back. It was seven days ago. So it was last oh, well. Friday. Go to last Friday's yeah. podcast and look for the Steve James episode and listen to that interview. Okay? Well, and I subscribe up here, so I subscribe yeah. to your podcast. Okay. Uh, I don't listen to Softy. I listen to you at 3 o'clock. Well, yeah. And, but, I can't, but, but I can't tell you, as a Portland kid, I was almost in tears as I was watching it because it took you back to opening night of the first game of the Blazers. There was only 4,200 people at the game. Unbelievable. Yeah, not if, you ask, not if you ask people today, there's 42,000 oh, if you ask people today. Like, I was at every no, game, I, they tell you. Yeah. I remember they had plywood down behind the baskets over the ice for the Portland Buckaroos or the, or the yeah, it was probably the Buckaroos. There was only 4,200 there. You go buy a ticket at Martin Frank's for $2 and sit courtside. So <laughs> to see where all that's come. And then when Bill got got there and he lived in northwest Portland and I had a job over there and I, I would see him park his car and walk to his house over there. And um, so it's great. I'm glad that uh, that he's still alive because I read that book. You know, he had a documentary. Yeah. Um, there was a biography. All right. All that right. You're excited. Just say. Where, where yeah. You, look, Mike, 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 you're excited, yeah, aren't yeah. you? You're fired up I, about I, this. Yes, I am. All right. I want you to carry this enthusiasm into your weekend. You got it? All right. Go big. All right. Go. All right. There he goes. Mike, Mike in Seattle. He's fired up, Stephen. He could have he gone play-by-play of what exactly happened in every scene throughout the entire documentary right here, John. I, I don't blame him. I don't blame him. That's great. I, but but it, for people who want to go to the watch party, Paul Knowles called in yesterday. Next week, I believe, is it Thursday when they come out, the episodes? Wednesday or Thursday? I can't remember. It's, it's the 13th is the next round. So we are four days away, whatever that is. Tuesday. Um, 124 Northeast Alberta Street in Portland is where the watch party is. 124, or is it 126? 124 Northeast Alberta Street. Next Tuesday for the for the watch party of the next two episodes of the Bill Walton Thirty for Thirty, join Paul Knowles and see him. Now, let's do punch it. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Fish Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio. Presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Well, let's start with Ryan Leaf. He was asked which Pac-12 quarterback... 
could challenge Caleb Williams to be the best. It's got to be Penix Jr., right? Here's Ryan Leaf. Punch it. It's Michael Penix Jr. from Washington. Um, they play each other this year. They didn't last year. He led the nation in passing. He was incredibly well protected in the pocket. He was hardly touched last year. And if they have any of the same type of protection, this team is going to be very difficult to beat. I do surely believe he came back to school because NIL existed. He's probably getting paid as much as he would have gotten as a third or fourth round draft pick this year. And what he's doing is setting himself up for a chance at a Pac-12 championship, a chance at a run at the, the college football playoff. And I really do think he's the mainstay in terms of a guy that could challenge Caleb Williams uh, uh, for the Heisman Trophy. He just says has to stay healthy. And, and that hasn't been a problem because they protected him. And they've got freaks running around the field at wide receiver. Yeah, look, Washington's great. Washington's been great. Part of the impressive part of what was most impressive about Michael Penix Jr. last season for me was everybody knew that's that's all Washington had on the offensive side of the ball. They couldn't run the ball. And he was still great. Oregon knew that Washington was throwing the ball and couldn't stop him. So did everybody else. Now he had a little bit of a fall off, couple points, couple games. But I, I actually think that there's a chance that Michael Penix Jr. doesn't quite have the statistical year that he had a year ago, but that Washington's just as good. And it would really rely upon Washington being a little better in the run game and a little better on defense, which I think they can do. But I, I'll, I'll add a caveat to this for Ryan Leaf. Who can challenge Caleb Williams? I think a number of QBs could challenge, including Bo Nix at Oregon. And I'll say this, I don't think statistically DJU at Oregon State is going to be a 4,600-yard passing guy. But Oregon State doesn't need him to do that. I think he could be super efficient and surprisingly efficient. Keep an eye on it. J.J. Redick talking about the formula to stop Nikola Jokic and Jamal Murray. Is there a formula? Can you stop these guys? J.J. Redick, punch it. I'll keep saying it. The the Jokic-Murray two-man action is virtually unguardable um i don't know how i don't know if there's a formula to stop it i don't know that there's a formula to contain both of them uh they tried at times to blitz murray handled it well they made some adjustments against the zone uh denver did that led to some easy buckets um, I look, I I think overall, I just want to be cognizant of what's happening in real time. Without any sort of takiness, I think we're witnessing Nikola Jokic and Jamal Murray, who are having an all-time playoff run. All-time playoff run, yes. But keep in mind, this is a team that had a 19 and 22 record on the road in the regular season. Hey, that's that's okay, right? By by NBA standards be, you know, three games under 500 on the road. But you know, they're not dominant in the regular season the way they've been in the postseason. Steven, I'm going to pivot to you here. What about the postseason has made the Nuggets look uh, look unbeatable? You know, the postseason in in all sports is so different than the regular season. I think in the bas- in basketball, it's about shot making, right? Like, can you create your own shot? Can you create shots for others? And that's exactly what Nikola Jokic and Jamal Murray do so well on that pick and roll. 
you know, Jamal Murray can score for himself, but he can also come off and pass to someone else. And Denver's been hitting some shots lately. You know, Murray's averaging uh, close to 10 assists a ball game in the first three games of the finals. Jokic, same thing. I talked about that a couple days ago. He's the most unselfish player I've ever seen in the NBA. Like, that's the way he plays, and he can create shots for himself, create shots for others, and they're good shots. They're not just, like, you know, contested threes. They're shots at the rim. They're shots, you know, in the paint that are easier. I think these two guys just are really good at, you know, creating room and getting to their spots on the court. And it's so hard to do in the playoffs because the defense is buckled down. And so when you find those guys, they can go on runs like this. And I, I think, you know, watching the Blazers play in the postseason in prior years when it was Dame and all those other teams, they didn't have anybody else that really could get to their spots and create for others. And I think right now with Denver, they have two guys and they're both elite at doing that one thing. So it's hard to guard those type of players. And, uh, you know, when they're rolling, Denver is a very tough team to stop. Damian Lillard took to Instagram Live and TikTok to address some comments about his future. Playing for other teams. Candid conversation with you. Listen carefully to Lillard. Punch it. I keep seeing this clip about um, Miami and all these other teams. And if y'all watch the whole interview, you'll see he asked me about specific teams, and I just answered the question. I think when people just answer questions honestly and just speak on stuff, y'all just take it and run with it. But I was just answering the question, bro. At the end of that same interview, he asked me, do you think you'll be in a Trailblazer uniform in October? And I said, Yes, I do. Because I do think that. And as I've been saying for over a decade, that's what I, I want to do, what I want to do. So, I mean, the clickbait is crazy. You know what I'm saying? I'm seeing people... Oh, you know, Dame is getting old. Like, y'all talking about it like I'm 37. I'm 32, bro. Like, I just had the best season of my career. I'm healthy. I'm strong. You feel me? And it ain't going to stop no time soon. So, I mean, it's crazy how they just be speaking on it. It's crazy how they be speaking on it as if, you know what I'm saying, I ain't capable of what I'm capable of. You see everything else that's happening. I'm just trying to. You know what I'm saying? Make a run. But I felt like I had to say something because I don't want it to keep looking like I'm in the background, you know, setting up or whatever. Like everybody have conversations. I, you feel me? I answer my honestly. I answer it straight up, especially if you put it on the table and be like, oh, this would be cool. That'd be cool. You know, that sound good. That sound good. But the reality of the situation is that I've been standing on what I've been standing on for a long time. Damian Lillard, I would say this to Dame. We all age, Dame. It's okay. Embrace it. It's not like you're 37, but we are kind of looking at the end of the rainbow here. But isn't he? Isn't he? <laughs> okay, I got a problem with this. He's yeah. mad that people are talking about what he's saying. He literally said this. He, I yeah, I understand he was asked the question. He didn't go out of his way to say, I want to play in Miami. But he said, if I were to play for a different team, 
Miami, obviously. Like, he's saying where he would want to play. Now, yes, he was asked a question, and then he said, yeah, I want to play for the Blazers. I think I'll be on the Blazers. But he literally said this, like, how are, we're not taking it out of context. This is Those are literally his words that he said. Like, we, he can't be mad about this. He, he shouldn't be mad about it. This is one of these things where uh, somebody says something, then everybody reacts to it, and then you get mad at everybody for the reaction to it. He, he look, I, I, and I, I'm trying to empathize with him here. He's going to be 33 on July 15th. Let's not say you're 32, okay? You're, you're closer to 33. You, my, uh, my nine-year-old would say he's 32 and seven-eighths or whatever that is. Yeah, what, Ten. what do you round up at that point, right? Yeah, you're rounding up. You're 33. You, the problem is everybody's looking at your contract and looking at 50 million, 55, 58 million towards the end of the deal. And no, it's not like you're 37, but it, it, it's not like you're 27. Okay, so you're moving away from your prime years. And I would also argue, like, I keep hearing he had his best year ever. I, I don't know if he did. I don't know if he did. I think he had a really encouraging year coming off a year in which he shut it down early got a surgery, got it addressed. He was rested coming into the year. He obviously, I mean, had some landmark games, 70 plus points, you know. It, it, he he proved he could still play if that's the if that's what he's saying. I'm not arguing with him. But if you give me Lillard at uh 29 or Lillard at 33, I'm taking Lillard at 29 all day. I I don't think he I don't think he helped himself with this video, but I also think he, I don't think he has any shame in saying I want out or I want this team to build around me. Like I, there's no shame in what he's saying. So why is, why does he feel like he has to come forth? I don't know. It just seems like he's playing both sides, right? Like he's saying, well, I didn't say that I want to play anywhere else. I said, I want to play for Portland or I think I'll be in Portland. But I also said where I would want to go if I don't play in Portland. Like, it's playing both sides. It, Judah made the point, like, it kind of has Russell Wilson vibes a little bit. When Russ came out and talked to Dan Patrick, said, you know, I, maybe I'd be traded. I'd go here. Like, that's what it kind of feels like to me, and it's not a bad. It's not bad if Dame wants out, but I think Portland right now, they're just in a spot where you got to do what's best for the franchise. If it's to keep Dame, there's no value. You keep Dame. If it's to trade Dame, trade Dame, but you can't be held hostage by Dame right now, and I just I don't understand why he's getting so mad about this when he said these words. 503-417-7575. I want you to weigh in. You heard, you heard Damian Lillard. You heard him say his piece there. Two minutes, 12 seconds, setting the record straight. You get a chance as a fan. What do you hear there? What do you want to happen here? What are you okay with? 417-7575-503 area code. I want your remarks, your reaction to Damian Lillard uh, going public. What do you want to happen here as a Blazer fan? What do you think should happen? What's the right thing to happen? What's the balance between doing what's right for the Blazers, doing what's right for Lillard? I think the Blazers 100% have to do what's right for them, but what do you think? You're a fan. You're entitled to have an opinion. You get a vote in this. 503-417-7575 on this fine Friday. Klaus is in Eugene. Welcome to the program. What do you think? And Klaus is gone. Just like that. I was so excited. We never had a Klaus call in. And suddenly, there's no Klaus. 
I was, uh, I was, that was going to be a good call. I set it up so beautifully. I want to ask, oh. let me ask you a question here real yeah. quick, John. And I've, yeah, I've seen Blazer fans talk about this. So Damian Lillard has been you know, loyal to the Blazer franchise, quote unquote loyal. If the Blazers were to trade him this off season before the draft, after the draft, whatever it is, do you think that goes and hurts the Blazers in retaining star players or acquiring star players in the future, thinking that they won't be as loyal to their star players as well. Cause I've heard fans say Dane's been so loyal. You can't get rid of him because it makes you look bad as a franchise. Players care about very few things. They want a chance to win. They want minutes and they want money guaranteed. I, I've never heard a player and I've heard this from Blazer fans too. I've never heard a player say that a great fan base is the number one reason why they sign with a team. I've never heard them say food trucks and uh, a lot of scenery, rivers, uh, great summers. I've never heard them talk like that. I They talk exclusively about playing time. They they want minutes. They They want money, the best possible money, and they want a chance to win. And I... Frankly, Stephen, I think that's overblown. I think people are overthinking it. Like, Damian, the franchise has been loyal to Damian Lillard. Yeah, they have. I mean, come on. He, you know, this whole idea that that it's been a one-sided. Oh, he's been so loyal to the Blazers. Look at his career earnings. Look at the supermax contract. If Dame he's, was if Dame you know? was drafted by the Charlotte Hornets, you know what? He would have never left Charlotte because they would have paid him, and he would have stayed there. Yeah. Like it's not because he's in Portland; it's because Portland was lucky enough to draft Dame. And yeah, they have treated him well. They've they've they've, they've paid him handsomely, and they're gonna keep paying him handsomely to stay in Portland. Like it is it's, a two. It's street. worked. It's worked for him. It's worked for them. And I and I think look, I think he's been a bigger star in Portland than he would have been in some other markets too. Let's be real. Yeah. And I From mean, the beginning. If, if he was in New York, maybe he'd be a bigger star the whole time. At the, but, so that's why you can say maybe Dame's loyal. But at the same time, it's been a, if Dame is traded tomorrow, it's been a success, right? The era of Dame Lillard has been a success in Portland. But to say that they're not being loyal to him and that's going to hurt people in the future, I, I just think that's crazy talk. Let's go to the phone lines. Nicholas is in Newburgh. Nicholas, what do you got? Yeah, I wanted to chime in on the Damian Lillard conversation about him wanting to stay in Portland versus leaving. I think the issue is he's ambiguous in a sense of he's okay to stay in Portland or he's okay to get traded, depending on what we do with the pick. If it were me personally, I would not trade the third pick of the draft, whether we get uh, Miller or Scooter Henderson. Um, So it's just interesting to see – Lillard kind of based his decision off of our action, but I think Lillard doesn't care what happens to him, whether it's staying in Portland or getting traded. I'll take that answer off the air. Thanks. Yeah, you're probably right because, you know, if he stays in Portland, it's it's because the team is built around him and he's happy about it. And if he asks out and says, no, I don't want to be here, it's because it didn't, and he probably feels like he's going to land somewhere with the help of his agent, Aaron Goodwin, that, that gives him a chance to win. I'll buy that. By the same token, I agree. You know, I want Scoot Henderson, not Scooter. But I, I, I think the Blazers make the pick, and I think the better strategy is for Joe Cronin and Burt Cold to try to sell Damian Lillard on the idea that Scoot Henderson is part of the future and part of the near term. Is it possible that he'll buy that? Tony's in Oregon City. Tony, what do you got? Hi, hi, John. Um, gosh, 
hasn't hasn't both ownership and Dame not really been loyal to each other? Because don't you have more purchasing power with less money for Dame and um, Jody Allen um, selling the team and actually trying to or or trying to make a successful team? Because I don't see them building a team around him. Look, they got rid of CJ. What they get for him? They do have good players. They don't have great players. Build a team around him, bringing great players. Then we'll talk about it. Thank you. Yeah, there you go. Mike dropped that one. But I would say to Tony, like, yeah. yes, they've paid him, but I would never, you know, tell someone to take less money, right? Like, you can't tell Dame to take less money. No, you can't. But you have seen star players in some other sports do it and do it successfully. And I just don't under- I don't think the NBA is built that way. And because of the salary cap, they don't. You know, in the NFL, you see more of it because of the hard salary cap. So you see players who say, hey, I'll restructure my deal for the good of the team because I know that that helps us win. And the signing or, bonuses yeah. and stuff like that, too. Yeah, I'll take less money, less guaranteed money. Uh, you know, I'll restructure. There, there's, there's, they're more mindful of the bigger picture. But in the NBA, because it's a soft salary cap and the team can just pay you above it and absorb a luxury tax, you're less incentivized to do that, I, and you see less of it. I have a good friend who would say his name is Dame Dalla, not Dame Discount. <laughs> Cam's in Eugene. Cam, listening on Fox, Fox Sports Eugene. Go ahead, Cam. Hey, John, happy Friday. I really took Dame's comments about Miami to be kind of more of a hypothetical, and I, I can see it his way getting upset about it. He has been nothing but loyal to Portland, hanging around when other people have – you know, went off to try and find their fame and their rings. And I'd push back on the idea that Portland's been super, super loyal to Dame. They've paid him. They've paid him what he's worth. But that's all they've done. You know, uh, free agency comes and goes, nothing. The draft comes and goes, nothing. And when we do get a generational talent, they have the knees of somebody from the last generation. It's time to do <laughs> right by Dame. It's time to do something in free agency and in the draft this year. Make the cap room if you need it. Trade things around if you need it. Do it now. Pull the trigger because you should have pulled the trigger three or four years ago, and we're still waiting to see what you're going to do for them. I think it goes back to the summer of 2016. It's not even three or four years ago. Where were you in the summer of 2016, Stephen? Were you working for the team? Uh, I was, yeah. Yeah, you're part of the problem. Yeah, I I made all those decisions. I was in all of that. Evan Turner, Myers Leonard, Alan Crabb. Big Evan Turner guy right here. All of that hamstrung. I mean, I, it was the precursor to everything. We want to blame Larry Scott for the Pac-12's current woes. It was Neil Olshay, summer of 2016. Worst summer by a GM in the history of the franchise. Worst summer by a GM in the history of Trailblazers. Not even close either. It's that bad. 503-417-7575. More of your calls. The 5 at 5 is coming up. We have so much to talk about. But I'll take your calls as long as you want to talk. Well, the 5 at 5 is upon us on this great Friday. Wherever you may be, as Bill Shonley said once upon a time, we have finally nailed it down. Stephen's fault, summer of 2016. He was in working for the Blazers. Neil Olshay, the GM, in meetings with the basketball operations staff, making all these deals. Alan Crabb, Evan Turner, throwing away money, locking up the franchise for the foreseeable future, putting the Blazers on a trajectory that basically flew the plane into the side of the mountain. I'll be the scapegoat. I'm fine with it. You, did you raise your voice? Did you Did you say, hey, Neil, uh, can I have a word with you? Hey, Neil, let's not give this four-year deal to Myers, Leonard, and Mo Harkless. 
No, I didn't. I did not do that, and I should have. That's my fault. I should have spoke up. You know, back you know, then, John, I didn't have the confidence I have now. Should have spoke up. You know what Anna tells the kids? She says, "Upstanders, not bystanders." You were not an upstander in that moment. <laughs> Here's the other thing: is Neil was throwing around all that money. Did it occur to anybody? Because you know that he was essentially setting up all of his draft picks for success. You know, Al Farouk Aminu. You know, he's bringing all these guys that he drafted once upon a time. Alan Crabb, giving them great minutes, setting them up for success. He was trying to create the narrative that he was a, a, an evaluator of talent like no other. I will say, John, in in his defense, he was a good second-round draft picker. <laughs> I've done the research. Put it on, on his tombstone. Yeah, but that, that's the one thing he did well. I mean... Those second-round picks don't get a lot of second contracts. He drafted a bunch of them. Will Barton, Alan Crabb, Pat Connaughton. Mm-hmm. He, he, he's okay. He was an okay drafter. I'll give him that. He's an okay drafter. <laughs> Put it on his bio. Is that a good definition of how of, it kind of sums up his uh, GM job? He was an okay drafter. Here's another one. I had another GM in the league when yeah, Neil Olshay got to like win number 500 as a GM. Uh, the Blazers put it in there media release for uh, the season. Now, never in the history of the NBA has anybody else put the record of a GM in a media release. And the opposing GM, who happened to be at the arena that night, noted it, circled it, and handed it to me <laughs> and said, what is this? Where Are we keeping records now for general managers' records in the NBA? And uh, you know damn well how that got in the game notes, you know? <laughs> Oh, he let he let someone know. Hey, yeah. you want to got five hundred wins, guys? Let's put that in huh. there. I'm at five hundred wins while they're valeting my car. Can we get that into the notes, into the game notes? And that's when Steven should have spoke up. That was the perfect moment when he was standing at the valet, waiting for his car. You should have sidled up to him and said, "Hey, I don't think this is a good idea." And 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 by the way, can I just say credit to Terry Stotts? Terry Stotts has moved to Florida with his wife. Uh, you know, I don't think he'll ever be a head coach in the NBA again. I think he's having a good time traveling, uh, riding his bike, enjoying the sunshine. But I think Terry Stotts did a lot with a roster that a general manager who's a good second-round picker gave him. Yes, I do agree with that, and I, but I do think it was time for Terry Stotts to go. Like, his time was over at that point. Like, he, there's a lot of things offensively yes. that wasn't creative yes. that he didn't do. But defensively, he got nothing out of his team. So, like, that's a lot of argument now is, well, the Blazers' roster can be better than that Western Conference Finals team. Yeah, I understand that, but the coach probably isn't as good as Terry Stotts, and the the Western Conference is much better than it was back then. There's a season for all things. Terry Stotts ran his course, and he did a good job, but he ran his course. And and I I say that. I have a lot of respect for Terry Stotts. Um, You know, here's why I respect Terry Stotts. The Blazers, Paul Allen... And Neil O'Shea did not want Terry Stotts to talk to me, okay? They forbid him from talking, speaking to me. Terry Stotts said to them, no, I, uh, he had a pre-existing relationship with me. I broke the news of Terry Stotts being the Blazers coach when he was hired. I happened to be over at the Olympics, covering the Olympics, and, and uh, got on the phone with he and Rick Carlisle. And Rick Carlisle was saying, hey, Terry's, Terry might get this job, and... You know, I'm not afraid to tell you how I found out about it. Rick Carlisle, who was with the Mavericks at the time, told me that Terry Stotts was getting the job. Terry Stotts was his assistant. I called Terry. I confirmed it. I broke the news. Terry talked to me. I wrote a column about Terry and his mother. They were riding their bikes through Europe or some pre-existing trip. And Paul Allen and Neil Olshay said, we don't want you talking to that guy. And Terry said to me, 
They don't want me talking one-on-one to you, but if someone else is in, in on the conversation, I don't see how they could, you know, I don't see how they could say no. And so I, I, gave Terry, I have respect for Terry. He stood up to them to a certain extent. The other guy who stood up to him, who they forbid for coming on this show, uh, was Bill Shonley, the mayor of Rip City. Another guy who stood up to him, Wesley Matthews. Wesley Matthews continued to come on this show, even though Neil Olshay said, don't come on the show. C.J. McCollum came on the show, even though they said, ah, you shouldn't do that. Don't go, don't do it, don't do it. C.J. did it on his own. He was up for some award with GQ magazine. He wanted to come on the show. He came on the show. So I respect Terry Stotts to a certain extent because the, you know, the resident bully, um, Kim John Olshay, was in charge at one center court, and uh, he, they, those guys did their own thing. And so I respect them for it. Uh, can I take a couple calls and then we do the five at five, or do you want to do the five at five right here, Steve? No, no, let's get the calls in. Let's get the calls yeah. in. Phil's in Portland. Phil wants to talk about Dame. Phil, go ahead. Hey, John. Uh, let me preface this by saying I'm a Dame fan. I love Damian Lillard. I mean, let's keep it okay. real. He's made some amazing moments over the last decade plus years. I mean, it's been amazing. He's a great player. I love him. He's been loyal. But let's keep it real. That era has come and gone. The Dame era, we had it. We did it. We loved it. And if you look at the teams organically, like Denver, look, look, look at look at Miami. They all they drafted those players. They didn't dra- they didn't go out there and sign three agents. Those are drafted players. So um, I think it's time to just get this number three draft pick and build around Shaden and Ant and all those people. But also, I want to bring up why is Jody Allen still the owner of the Blazers? <laughs> That's yeah. the biggest problem to me, John. Honestly. Yep. Big problem. Jody needs to so, go. I'll yeah. yeah I, hey, look. Sell the team. Yeah, she should sell the team. I, I I think, Phil, that Adam Silver needs to put some more pressure on her. I think that's what it's going to take. It's going to take him squeezing her. But she's stubborn. I also think she likes being Queen Bee. She likes being in charge. She likes the leverage, the control, the power. The minute she gives up Trailblazers, Inc., the minute she gives up the Seahawks, she's just Paul's sister. And, I, you know, look, just keeping it real. Dave's in Vancouver. Dave? Give us some perspective on this Damian Lillard thing. Okay, here's what it reminds me of. Um, okay. And I, I had to Google it and read it, I read an article, but uh, it's when we uh, traded Clyde Drexler. Mm. Uh, it was 1995, I believe it said, and Clyde kind of wanted out. You know, uh, they hadn't been in the final in a couple of years, and they seemed to like kind of just gave up. And uh, so we we traded him to the Houston Rockets for and Tracy Murray uh, for Otis Thorpe and a first rounder, and he won a championship that year. And good for him. And I was so happy. But uh, it just it reminds me of the same situation. And I don't know who they got for that first round first rounder either. I was gonna look that I up. I didn't go I, that deep. I think the bigger picture is that. You know there have been there have been some precedents for stuff like this. Portland's not the first NBA team or sports team to have a star they drafted get to an age where the star goes, "Hey, I'm not sure this is happening for us around here," and the franchise has got to face, "Hey, a total rebuild or a slight rebuild or at least a pivot towards its future," versus writing it out with existing players' um, timeline, but. Those other franchises, and some franchises have successfully pivoted, uh, 
have largely done so because there's an owner and a GM behind the scenes who are worth a damn, who have uh, you know a plan. And I want to believe in Joe Cronin. I want to believe that he has worked hard. He's come up through the Blazers organization from intern to general manager. What a story. Uh, so I want to believe in him. But then I'm looking behind him going, where's the owner with the plan and the vision? You know, it's kind of like what Pat Kilkenny was talking about earlier in the show, like when he was talking about Phil Knight as an owner and how owners meddle and Chip Kelly telling Pat Kilkenny, like, bad owners in the NFL, they they just get heavy-handed. Um, you know, you don't want heavy-handed, but you want somebody who cares, somebody who's willing to open the checkbook and write a check, somebody who can make a decision saying, all right, you know what? Um, you know what? The franchise needs to come first. Somebody who can advocate on behalf of the fan base and the franchise. That's missing right now. Gary's in Canby. Gary, what's up? You know, this gets more towards the Walton thing. But the year we won the championship, I was fortunate enough to look at what was going on early in the season and saying to a co-worker, I think the Blazers are going to go far in the playoffs. You wanted to get season tickets for the rest of the year, which we did, and I was fortunate enough to be at the championship game when we won it. But one thing that's never brought up is the fact that the ABA disbanded and players were coming into the, to the NBA. And that's how we got Maurice Lucas. But no one talks about the fact we also got Moses Malone and decided we should trade him. And think about what we would have been had we had Moses Malone when Bill had all of his problems and what Moses accomplished for the rest of his career. Yeah, but would you trade that, Gary and Canby, for the championship? Would you trade... A what if for no, but I'm a championship saying, why parade? Why did we need to trade Moses? We could have had him. He could have been a backup to both Maurice and to Bill. You think that would have worked? I don't know. He was pretty yeah. young at the time. I don't know. I, I I I'll take what happened. I don't. I tend not to question when somebody wins a championship. I tend to go, you know, at benefit of the doubt. They knew, you know, spoke. Uh, at length with Bill Walton, Harry Glickman, Bill Shonley, Dr. Jack Ramsey over the years about what went down in that era. And I think the shame was not, you know, hey, what if with Moses Malone? The shame was, you know, that subsequent year with Bill Walton, they were better to start the year. They were better. So that's kind of where I am. Let's do the five at five. The five at five. Number one story, as Steven sees it, is Super Regionals. NCAA Baseball Tournament Ducks taking on Oral Roberts Game 1 tonight. Ducks, they're big-time favorites in the series to win, John, and get to Omaha. Um, usually that's Oregon State in this spot where they're looking to go to Omaha, but it's the Ducks right now. Uh, college baseball, NCAA Tournament is very fun, so Game 1 is tonight. Uh, the best of three series, Ducks versus the Golden Eagles of Oral Roberts. Yeah, we had uh, Pat Kilkenny, the athletic director, former AD at Oregon, 
who brought baseball back once upon a time. He was on the show earlier. If you didn't hear it, grab the podcast. It was a fascinating look into the the steps that were necessary to get to this point. A lot of little steps, and you know, he talked about the brand of Oregon. You know how how uh, you know this kind of stuff that is happening now for Oregon on the baseball field. It's breakthrough stuff. And Mark Wazikowski and his team, they weren't the best team in the Pac-12 this season. They went 40-20 and 20 to this point. They weren't the best team. But, man, they hit the long ball. They played well when it counted. They win the Pac-12 tournament. They win their, their regional. They're hosting a super regional. Do not bet against them getting to Omaha. Uh, let's go. Number two, Steven. Uh, Anthony Bass, a relief pitcher, formerly of the Blue Jays. He was just DFA'd today. Now, this is making waves because it is – Pride Week for the Toronto Blue Jays and Bass shared a post on social media called for anti-LGBTQIA plus boycotts at Target and Bud Light but he has he had apologized for sharing that post a day later. Fans in Toronto were booing him when he was making appearances on the mound and he was supposed to catch the first pitch today in Pride Week but he was DFA'd right before the game so he does not uh, make that catch on yesterday, Bass said he's been working hard to educate himself but doesn't believe the social media post he shared last month was hateful. Blue Jays uh, seemed like they got some crazy timing there that they just did not want him to be a part of Pride Week, and he wasn't pitching very well either for the Blue Jays. Look, I, I think um, – do you think it's – all right, when you look at that story, what's the what's the first thing that jumps out at you? Um, That they he was supposed to catch the first pitch today. And they just and cut him right before the game. They cut him right before the game. <sighs> um, I think these teams are all over the map with this stuff. Look at what the Dodgers have done. Because as much as I want to make this about, like, just the Blue Jays alone, the Dodgers, with their pride thing, they invited, you know, a, a, a group of fans to the stadium, then they ban them from the stadium, then they re-invite them to the stadium, and then Clayton Kershaw's upset, and then you have Bass basically get. <laughs> getting cut scheduled to catch i saw him interviewed talking about it and um you know what booed by his own fans i don't know i it's i don't it's tough it is tough because on look on one hand i want to be inclusive if i'm the blue jays i'm the dodgers i'm whoever but is shouldn't the inclusion extend to a player like bass who's saying hey this sort of uh this violates my belief system, my Christian beliefs. Like, I, I'm not comfortable with this. Shouldn't the inclusion be extended to all people? I don't know. Because I don't necessarily him say, him see his belief system as saying, like, you know, I guess it's too much of a distraction and he's not a good enough player. Is that he, what we're saying I here? think that's what it is. If he was a better player, if he was a younger player, maybe they keep him. He hadn't been pitching well. I think it was easy that the fans are booing him already. Like, okay, well, we'll just cut him and put someone else out there. I mean, it, it's just one of those things where if you put something on social media, like it goes to the question of like with Kyrie Irving earlier, earlier this year, like, are you promoting it? Do you believe it? Are you just showing awareness? Like, what's the point? Like, everyone's just got to be careful with their social media, what they put out there. If you post it, if you like it, you're probably good. people are going to assume that you are believing whatever you're putting out there. I, I also think like if he doesn't put it out, um, that doesn't change that that's what's that's his belief system. And I don't I don't see this the same. Like some people compared it to a, you know, it, it's it's hateful for him to have that opinion. 
I don't see that it, the same as you uh, you see somebody who is, you know, making race an issue or, or, or issuing a, a racist tweet or something on Instagram. He simply said, this doesn't line up with my Christian belief system. And I'm okay. Like, I, if I'm the Blue Jays, you gotta, you got to have to understand, like, a baseball clubhouse, you're going to have differences in race, religion, whatever. Like, I, I would have leaned into the idea of, hey – Let's, you know, let's be tolerant of his belief system as well. I don't know. Maybe it's just me. I could be talked off that. But that's why I asked you what's the first thing that jumped out at you. And what jumps out at me is I guess he's not a good enough player to, to say this doesn't line up with my belief system because Clayton Kershaw is saying it in L.A. as well, and he did not get cut. Number three, what do you got? Uh, a little lighter story here, but more funny. Uh, Coach Prime. He has responded to Pat Narduzzi, who's the, the pit coach who had been critical of NIL transfer portal, portal earlier. Now, uh, earlier this year, Narduzzi said Coach Prime was using the portal in a way that it was not intended to be used. Um, it was bad for the sport the way he used it. Now, Coach Prime, he's clapped back, John. Coach Prime says he's in a much different situation than Pitt was. Narduzzi's still mad at USC and Lincoln Riley, just taking it out on Coach Prime. But then later, Dion said, quote, I don't know who he is. If he walked in here right now, I wouldn't know him. And, quote, is there a better diss than uh, I don't know who you are? I don't know who you are. No, probably not a better diss than that. And uh, Coach Pride can dish it as well as take it. But is he being thin-skinned here? Is he being a little sensitive? Um, Do you, or no. does, he need, does he need to clap back? No, he doesn't have to, but I think it goes with his brand and it's good for him. I think people like that. Yeah. I thought it was. I thought it was entertaining. I, I, I think this is Coach Prime and what he wants to do. Do you think we're going to see this all season long with uh, football coaches, opposing coaches, you know, fans, I, I players? Think, I think with these old football coaches, yeah. Like we've seen it in basketball already with transfer portal. A lot of these old coaches just can't deal with it. Coach Prime, he he's embracing it. He's embracing <laughs> the transfer portal. Like maybe Narduzzi's not doing it as much. You know, he they lost Jordan Addison. To, uh, USC the year before. I don't know. Yeah, man. I, he's I, fed up with it. Yeah, I just think he's fed up with the whole thing. And Coach Prime's like, look, I'm, I'm just doing what the rules tell me to do. I'm not breaking rules. I, I need transforming my roster because it was really bad a season ago. So I like what Coach Prime's doing. Yeah. Well, let's see what happens there. Um, uh, you know, I, uh, Coach Prime went on to say, what was his situation when he came to Pitt? He had a different situation than me. He's not mad at me. He's mad at football. Uh, that's probably true. Like Jordan Addison leaving. I, I don't blame Narduzzi for being frustrated, but this is the system. Don't blame Coach Prime and anybody else who's exploiting it. I mean, it's the system. Narduzzi looks like he's mad a lot, too. Yeah. Well, isn't he the guy that was running around after, like, the West Virginia Pitt game going, look at all the fans. ESPN's wrong. I don't know. Uh, number, what do we want? Four. Five? Four. Four. Sorry. Hey, Four. No, you're good. Uh, Jets head coach Robert Sala, he said that he hopes HBO's Hard Knocks don't choose the Jets to be the subject of the show this season. <laughs> uh, Jets, they're one of four teams that can be compelled to participate. The other teams are the Browns, the Commanders, and the Saints. Seems like an easy choice to me that the Jets should be the choice. But Saints coach Dennis Allen, he also said he would not like Hard Knocks being there. Um, no, nobody wants the distraction. But you also, I think we're all well aware that amid that distraction is an opportunity for the NFL, an opportunity for merchandising. The Jets could stand to, you know, to have the users there. If you're HBO, which team do you want to see? Because for me, it is the Jets. It's the Jets. It's the Jets, and I mean, I guess 
the Commanders just because the new ownership. Like I don't, yeah. wa- I don't want to see Deshaun Watson and the Browns. I'm over them. No way do I want to see the Saints. Nothing good about them. It's it, the obvious answer is the Jets. Like Aaron Rodgers, got gotta be, gotta be the Jets. Finally, number five. Steven? Big time soccer news here, John. We haven't talked about it yet. Messi, he is coming to enter Miami. He has decided to come to Miami instead of going back to Barcelona or playing in Saudi Arabia without taking the money now. Um, you know, there's been some people that love it, and some of the soccer experts that I listen to say uh, this is bigger than the David Beckham news when he came over because Messi is just a much better player. Now, there's some people. Um, I just blanked on this guy's name, but he was from Fox, and he said he uh, wants to uh, hear Messi talk and speak a little English. That's his problem with him right now. So we need him to speak English. I don't think Apple TV's upset. Uh, They gave Messi a piece of the proceeds from the MLS deal, uh, and I think they will reap a big-time reward. Kind of made me think about the Pac-12 and a possibility of the Pac-12 streaming on Apple. If it's good enough for Messi, is it good enough for the Pac-12? Uh, this is great for the league. It's great for the brand. Um, is it uh, is it going to be uh, a massive hit for soccer fans? I think it will. It'll be a draw. Look at the ticket prices for all their games. This is good for sports. This is good for Miami. It's good for America. I got the clip here. Fox's Brian Kilmeade uh, on Lionel Messi coming to MLS and into Miami. Yeah, the only thing I worry about, he doesn't speak English. I want to see him sit down and talk. Uh, one thing about David Beckham, he learned to speak English uh, for us, only uh, with an accent. Uh, when he came at 32 years old, Messi said this, if it had been a matter of money, I'd have gone to Arabia or elsewhere. It seemed like a lot of money to me. The truth is that my final decision goes elsewhere and not because of money. Well, his, uh, you know, Ronaldo speaks fluent English. And so, you know, Messi can learn it. I love how he said David Beckham learned to speak English. For us. Nobody else. <laughs> I but thought Posh Spice spoke English, too. Like, what a coincidence. But Messi's supposedly taking less money to come to Miami and play. Um, unfortunately, they don't play the Timbers this year. That was the first question I had. I had to go to my soccer experts. They said no with Portland Timbers this year. But, I mean, I mean it's kind of cool, right? Like, he's supposed to be the best of all time. And uh, he'll be playing in the MLS next, or this season, I believe. Uh, little Messi is a huge draw. And this is like, you know, Michael Jordan, you know, you can talk about him late in his career with the Wizards or whatnot, you know, not quite, you know, that late in his career, but this is a big draw. This is, this is validation for MLS, and MLS needed it, and uh, I'm excited to see how this works out. Like, you know, let's go see it. I, I did see that the Inter-Miami tickets went from like $40 to 400 yes. right away, so uh, it, yes, it will be a big draw. There is a viral video that circulated in early January in which people were shocked when Messi spoke English in the video. I don't know if he really speaks English or maybe he just knows a few phrases, but something tells me he speaks the language of soccer. Yeah, I think it'll be okay. Leave it here. Our seven-year-old leaves her stuff everywhere. Like... She just uh, reported to me. She uh, had a. Uh, she went over a friend's house uh, just a few minutes ago, and she said, "I said uh, I saw her. And I said, where's your glasses?'" She says, "Oh, I left them at my friend's house." She said, "I also left my shirt there." I said, "How do you lose your shirt and your glasses both together?" She said, "Well, we were trying stuff on. I tried on a dress. I'm wearing her dress." I said, "How do you leave her house without your shirt and without your glasses? You can't see. You got someone else's shirt on when you come home." I, I'm not that carefree, Stephen. I'm well aware of where my shirt 
is and where uh, my glasses are and where I am at all times. So. It, it's very frustrating. I uh, I feel your pain on this one. I I know having an eight and a four year old, they just uh, <laughs> leave stuff anywhere, and then I'm and then I'm in the one that's supposed to get it, be in charge of it. I um I think I would like to be that carefree, where I come home one day and I go, you know what? I left my shirt there. Forgot it. Just walked off without it. You know what? I don't want to um, be that carefree. I, I don't want to. <laughs> I feel like that's a little too carefree for me. Like, I want to have a little bit of organization in my life. Like, I don't want to be just so far out there. Like, that's Bill Walton stuff. I'm not on the Bill Walton level. Yeah. I know. I know. But I just, <laughs> I think, that, but because she's wearing a red dress. And I'm noting, I look at her and I'm like, that's not your dress. And she's like, yeah. And I left my shirt and my glasses at my friend's house. I'm like, how do you just walk out? Without that. Um, interesting conversation today on the Dan Patrick Show. Andrew Brandt uh, was a guest on the Dan Patrick Show, and he was talking about the PGA Tour deal with uh, LIV Golf and the Saudis. And we heard that comment from Adam Silver uh, on the Dan Patrick Show. I'm going to play these in conjunction. Now, Adam Silver joined the Dan Patrick Show yesterday. NBA commissioner, again, the Saudi involvement with the PGA Tour has been a big talking point this week. Decide for yourself how uncomfortable or uncomfortable you are with that. But Adam Silver was asked, have the Saudis tried to buy an NBA team? And I think he left the door open just a little bit. Have the Saudis looked to invest or buy an NBA team? No. What would Not you... that I'm aware of. I mean, they, that, that, they certainly haven't come to the league office. And under our rules, um, you an individual can only buy an NBA team right now. You can, um, a fund, and that's what's happening here. It's, okay. a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's called a sovereign wealth fund that's investing in the, in the PGA Tour. But we allow funds to invest in teams but not control teams, not to have influence over teams. So to, 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 to own an NBA team, there has to be an individual with a certain percent of the team to control it. Now, a majority owner gets us you know gets control of the team adam silver though i think le- leaves it some ambiguity there is there a saudi investment in an nba team andrew brant joined patrick for a conversation today and he sort of raised the idea that you know it, it feels like money's just money that, that these investment funds are going to come into the big four sports but now we talk about the saudis what just happened in golf shows the unlimited resources that they have, Dan. You've seen this. I mean, the problem for the PGA was not that it was Saudi, that not what it was anything to do with morals. The problem is they had unlimited resources. <laughs> they weren't going away. It wasn't the AFL, wasn't the USFL, wasn't the XFL. They could buy them, and they did, and we can talk about that. But the NFL relaxing their rules on this kind of uh, wealth funds could happen. I mean, I think we're seeing this toehold. I think the golf deal this week is a first step. I think now there's maybe credibility is too strong a word, Dan, but now there's this feeling, okay, they're in golf. They host, Qatar hosted the World Cup. They're in Formula One. They're in Newcastle United. It's not a stretch to see them get in the core four American sports, even the NFL. There it is. Not a stretch thinking that they're going to get into the core four. The um, the idea that Saudi money would get into um, that would get into uh, uh, the NBA 
or Major League Baseball or the NFL is not unthinkable. Here's a question, though, that I want to kick around a little bit, just, just a touch. It was just three years ago that Larry Scott, then the Pac-12 commissioner, um, proposed to the Pac-12 conference that they should sell to a private equity company 10% stake in the Pac-12 media rights, and they wanted um, $100 million for 10%. If it turned out that the Saudis had come in at that time, because I did hear that there was an offer, and the Pac-12 turned it down, it may have just been the president's uncomfortable with it. I want to run that down now, Stephen, because I'm kind of wondering, was the $100 million offer from, like, the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund? Did the Pac-12 get an offer for their media rights that involved an investment from an entity that they weren't comfortable with? Or were they just not comfortable, in the end, selling a portion of their media rights? How do you think it would fly if, uh, if it turned out that the Pac-12 took money from the Sovereign Wealth Fund? Is it worse in college, I guess is what I'm asking, less tolerant in the college ecosystem or in somewhere like professional golf where we sort of expect that money drives the, the bus yeah i think it's uh it would be questioned a little more if it was a call in college right i think you hit on it right there it's professional based off college i i think if it if they bought an nfl team like we would question it and i think people would be very kind of shocked but the nfl seems like they would be okay with it and they'd sell it and then we would all forget about it where i think in college you want to hope and you want to think that the purity of the game is a little bit more than what it is in the NFL since it is still technically amateurs playing sports. And so I think if they were to have taken money from the Saudis like that, it would be there'd be some backlash to it. Um, I don't I agree with Andrew Brand. I think this is kind of the tip of the iceberg here. Not, you know, being with PGA, I think it opens the door. Like you said, not it's not credible. They don't have credibility, but I think we're opening the door to saying, okay, like this is pretty much inevitable because they have money and it sports is all about money. So, you know, why would they be denying them this opportunity? Yeah, I, uh, I think uh, there's a lot to unpack here, and I, I just here's my thing. I always, whether it is, you know, frequenting a restaurant, going to a movie, going to a sporting event, you know, rooting for a team. I always try to educate myself as much as possible on, you know, what is the value system of what I'm watching? You know, do I, you know, do I agree with how this was put together and whatnot? But in today's world, I do think it becomes harder and harder and more difficult as we start to unpack this. Like I had, I have close friends who I said, you know, I'm not comfortable with LIV golf, you know, in, in, in large part because, you know, I was privy to the stories that were happening in Portland. There was a case with a Portland State student who uh, was killed in a hit-and-run situation by a Saudi citizen. That citizen then was whisked out of Portland under the cover of night. Saudi government involved in that, getting them out of the country so they did not have to fight uh, criminal charges or face criminal charges in that case. There are other well-documented cases of this happening. It's just kind of what happens. Wealthy Saudi citizens who send their kids and uh, come to the United States, if they get in trouble for a crime, it's not very difficult for them because that's how their country works, to uh, escape prosecution with the help of the government. I'm not comfortable with it. 
not comfortable with that, some of the human rights stuff. And, uh, you know, I don't need to be outspoken. I don't need to hold a sign. I don't need to go out to the golf course and protest. But, you know, I had friends say, hey, you want to go out to the LIV golf thing? I said, ah, it's not for me. It's just not for me. But, you know, as the friend starts to argue with me about it and says, well, you take an airline trip, where do you think the gas is coming from? You drive a car, where do you think the gas is coming from? And you could start to go down that rabbit hole. And, yeah, it's convoluted. It's tricky. What about China? You know, it, human rights issues in China, Darfur. You know, I was over in Beijing for the China, for the Olympics in 2008, and, you know, the Chinese people were open-armed and saying, hey, our country's great. You know, this is communism is wonderful. Come into our country, you know, open arms. This is a new China. And, you know, in the background of it, of course, there's horrific stuff that has gone on and has happened, and I can't walk through Tiananmen Square without thinking about, like, what happened there. And it's, um, you know, it's... It, you got to be able to sleep. You got to, you know, and I don't blame people who say I don't want to see blood money in my sports. I also bl- I don't blame people who say I don't want to buy a diamond that has been associated with a conflict. To each his own on that front. But I think it's increasingly difficult to stand straight faced. And we, you know, I think the biggest sin that the PGA Tour has committed in all of this is not related to the decision in the place that they ended up. The biggest sin is that they were wildly outspoken against doing business with LIV Golf and then flip-flopped this week. Because to me it looks like they had a value system and they went, yeah, but we have a price too, and they just flip-flopped. You know, if you've got a value system, it should just be your value system. If this- and I'd have more, more respect for them in the beginning had they just said, hey, it's money, we're taking investment from everywhere, we don't have a problem with what went on in Saudi uh, with the Saudi government. If the Saudis are to get into one of the core four sports, what league do you think they would most likely get into first? Like who's NBA. willing? Who, who's willing? You think NBA? I, 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 based on Adam Silver's answer, I kind of wonder if they already are in the NBA. Listen, listen to what he said to Dan Patrick. You tell me, as a listener of this show, do you suspect that NBA teams have Saudi investments in them? based on this answer from Adam Silver or not. Just listen carefully to how he answers Dan Patrick's question. Have the Saudis looked to invest or buy an NBA team? No. What would not you... that I'm aware of. I mean, they, they, they certainly haven't come to the league office. And under our rules, um, you, an individual can only buy an NBA team right now. You can um, a fund, and that's what's happening here. Okay. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's called a sovereign wealth fund that's investing in the, in the PGA Tour. But we allow funds to invest in teams but not control teams, not to have influence over teams. So to, 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 to own an NBA team, there has to be an individual with a certain percent of the team to control it. I, I mean, I very clearly hear Adam Silver at the beginning of that say, no, not as an owner. And then, you know, they haven't come to the NBA, you know, and identified themselves as the owner. But – he then talks about funds that can invest in teams. Stephen, like if you had to bet, do you think that the Saudis have an investment in an NBA team somewhere? I would say no. I would bet no, but I would I would say that he's lying and that they haven't reached out to them. Right, like he said, they haven't come to the league offices. You know, I think he's being very technical with that answer. There's definitely been some conversations had back and forth. Um, I don't because I think I think the NFL would be more willing to give give that type of thing up. Um, 
Maybe. Because they're so untouchable with their shield. Like, I feel like that would be the thing. Like, so I think the NBA— I just don't know if the NFL needs the money. And I kind of look at the NBA and I go, you know, until this next TV deal, the NBA, I think, was in a little more precarious position— Given the NFL's media contract, with the Seahawks situation and the Blazers situation, do you think that Saudi money could be involved this early, or was it going to take a little bit longer before everyone's kind of willing to, you know, accept that? I think I think there's a, a faction of the audience that does accept it already and just says, "Hey, it's money. There's Saudi money in oil. There's Saudi money in airlines. There's you know, you if you dig deep enough into every dollar, American dollar, there's." You can trace, you know, uh, five cents of Saudi money or two cents. I don't know. But it. I think that there's a faction of the audience, and I'm going to say it's about 30% of the audience that would be okay with it no matter what. It's just money. Money makes the world go round. Money drives sports. I think there's probably another 25 or 30% that would be really adamantly against it, and I think maybe there's 40% of the audience that probably doesn't care. Do you, Am I reading that right? I, I think I you're know. probably right. I, I think you're probably right on that. Do you think – by the time the Blazers or Seahawks are sold, that uh, the Saudis will be like a like a potential buyer at that point. If, if, that that if Jody Allen sells the Blazers to the Sovereign Wealth Fund or somebody who takes the Sovereign Wealth Fund as an investor instead of Phil Knight, it will go down as one of the greatest travesties in the history of this state, maybe next to the Delta Dome not getting built and the Seahawks going to Seattle. I, I, I It would just be... It would be such a shame. Some parting thoughts, some more uplifting thoughts. Well, we're in the last uh, stanza of today's show. We'll take a couple phone calls. I want to give away some tickets as well. Anybody out there want to go to the, um, I'm blanking on what it is now, the same, is it the St. Paul Rodeo? Sorry, I was going to say the Roundup. St. Paul Rodeo. I have two pairs of tickets to the St. Paul Rodeo. Uh, I'm just going to go uh, to the first caller. Let's say caller who hits line two and caller who hits line four. 503-417-7575. Good luck to you if you want to go to the St. Paul Rodeo. Two pairs of tickets. We can give them out on today's show. I want to go out to Michael and Eugene listening on Fox Sports Eugene. Michael, pepper me with questions. Go. John, you have been the stalwart North Star on the expansion I had to call in. I was telling Judah, I was listening to Adam Rittenberg on XM84. They, they were talking about the Wazoo president saying that they expect consummation of the deal by the end of the month. And the, the empty, no clue rhetoric that he started and finished yeah. his uninformed, pointless diatribe was clearly... They are feeding those guys something about pushing sure. the Pac-12 demise rhetoric to the Big 12's benefit. But as you and uh, Bob Thompson have said all along, if Arizona and Colorado all of a sudden were like, oh, yeah, we're going to go to the Big 12, it's not like there's more money for them to share in. It's, it's done. These things are... The die is cast till the next round, as far as I understand it. And those guys are staying home because, as you said yesterday, Colorado, they're going to appease Dion. Guess what? He's going to be gone in three years. My yeah. final take is that Big Ten scheduling thing is the funniest thing I've ever seen. UCLA is face 
boxing a gauntlet. And guess who's going to get tired of that after year three? Yep. Lincoln Riley will be gone to the NFL. Remember this call. And then what are you going to do, USC? They will be lost in the woods for another 20 years like they were before. They are so dysfunctional. They can't – look at Mike yeah. Vaughn. I mean, they are a clown show. No one does less with more. And yeah. I'd like your comments, sir. What do you think about that? Yeah, well, I'll start with kind of the rhetoric that's out there. Um, I like Adam Rettenberg. I, I have seen, you know, I've seen things from journalists that I like, journalists I dislike, that I've disagreed with uh, in the last year, journalists that I respect that I totally disagree with. Like, you know, it's all over the place. But I'll just tell you this. I, When I'm reporting something, I'm not getting my information from a consultant. A consulting firm or a consultant is paid by an entity to either evaluate their position in the marketplace or help them be better positioned in the marketplace. So you have to, if you're talking to them, take anything that they say to you with a grain of salt and you take it, you write it down, and then you turn around and you go out and you go out and you try to vet it. Okay? So I had consulting firms talk to me about Gonzaga and Oregon and I had one uh, in the Big 12 footprint say, hey, can we gossip about the Pac-12? And I'm like, gossip? Like, no, I'm not interested in gossiping about anything. I want to know what's really going on. And so all I have reported to this point is what I know to be true. I know it to be true that the Pac-12 presidents and chancellors came to an agreement between each other probably in February maybe in early March, where they circled up and they said, hey, we're all over the place right now with our messaging. We need to close the circle. We need to look each other in the eye. We were betrayed by USC and UCLA, and we need to acknowledge that in this room with each other, we are going to agree to stay together until we see numbers, and then we can all do what's best for our universities. Okay, they made that agreement, and that's why, in part, they punted and went from talking about, hey, there's going to be a deal in two weeks, there's going to be a deal in a week, the week, three weeks, whatever they were saying, to, hey, we're all together, we're on the same page. Now, I am told by several members of the Pac-12 CEO group that they have seen numbers, despite the fact that others have gone public saying, well, I haven't seen any numbers. I sort of suspect they're playing a semantics game, that they know that the number is within range of about 32 million, 33 million per school, whatever the number is, but they haven't seen it on a piece of paper in front of them that they can sign. And so I think you're getting some mixed messages right now in the marketplace. I have a couple of wild theories that are based on educated guests and conversations I have had with people who are actually in the room. One of them is San Diego State has this looming June 30th deadline and they have to inform the Mountain West Conference by June 30th whether or not they're going to leave the conference. We all know that. I kind of wonder if the Pac-12 is prolonging this a little bit because they are squeezing San Diego State into a position where they go, hey, you know what, we can wait till after July 1st and we cut you in at a distribution or we can do it before June 30th. doesn't matter to us. But if we do it before June 30th, it saves you $17 bucks. 
So you take a lower distribution if we announce b- before June 30th. They may be playing that game with San Diego State right now. Yeah, keep an eye on that. I posted today, uh, 3 o'clock, at johnconzano.com. If you want to know what's going on, I bullet-pointed everything that I know that is happening right now, some of it that nobody else is reporting, but you can find it at johnconzano.com. We are back next week. Great shows next week. We had great shows this week. Thank you to Steven. Thanks to the callers. The Bald Face Truth, not here for a long time, just a good time.